You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. Have you been to the Garden of Eden before? Uh, no, uh... I just said I could look around. Certainly. But I'm afraid you can't touch. Not for free, anyhow. Are you interested in a high colonic? I, I have no idea. Uh, here we have a girl with a, with a wide range of symptoms, including disobedience. Now then, the secret to maintaining proper health and therefore an obedient temperament is to... Properly cleanse the body of all vile humors. October 16th. I feel that at last my life has some kind of purpose. I've always known that the filthy, hoary element of the city was growing and getting bigger. But I never knew what, what to do about it. Now I know what I can do. I couldn't wonder if she was dirty. But maybe she can be cleaned out. I cleaned her out, she could be clean again. She could be all right. She could have good thoughts. Now she's dirty. And there's shit thoughts, puke thoughts. But I can fix that. I'll give her an enema. She has vile humors. That's why she's acting like this. I'll clean, her. I'll clean out her vile humors. She might not understand right away because she's having bad thoughts. But after it's over, she'll thank me. I know she will. She'll be glad I cleaned her out. You're just a pig. You like to get fucked. Okay, pig. Oh. Oh. Now you're getting fucked just like you like. Oh. You love to get fucked, don't you? Oh. Talk to me. I'm your girlfriend, remember? Talk to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> that you lied to me because you are pretty. And I, I thought when I first saw you that we could be friends maybe after I, after I, you know, purified you. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is that dirty devil himself, Mr. Rob St. Mary. No, I'm not blowing smoke up there. Also along with us this week is our friend Heather Drain. Hello, hello. This week we are looking at Sean Costello's Water Power. Released in 1976, the film tells the tale of Jamie Gillis as Bert. He's something of a loner and very high-strung. We see his descent into madness throughout the film as he goes from peeping Tom to terrorizing New York City as the Enema Bandit. Based loosely on the real-life case of Michael Kenyon, Water Power also owes a debt to Taxi Driver and the Madness of New York City, heightened by America's Bicentennial. So, Heather, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Water Power, and what did you think? The first time I was aware of Water Power was actually in high school, which I didn't I didn't get to see it till much later. I remember reading a review of it uh, on the early days of the internet and being like, what is this? This film sounds crazy. And then years later, I managed to get a copy of the Alpha France, 
DVD release of it, which is a really beautiful release. It's uh, my first thought of it was like, oh, I, I was like just blown away. It was very the Taxi Driver you know, influence definitely shined pretty sweet and strong. Uh, the composition, like the camera work, um, all the elements in this film are really, really tight. It's a you know, I was struck by how well made it was. And just, of course, Jamie Gillis's performance. Well, I've always been fascinated in hydroelectric power ever since I went to Niagara Falls as a child and wrote on the Maid of the Mist. You know, they put you in one of those um, uh, raincoats. Oh, wait. Wrong, wrong episode. I thought we were talking about a documentary (laughs) about hydropower. Anyway, water power. Yes. Uh, I didn't even know this existed until we had Heather on the show, and we were talking to her about uh, opening a Misty Beethoven, and she had mentioned Jamie Gillis in this film, and I was like, what? And the more we looked into it the more interesting it got so we figured why not do an episode on this uh crazy little and i guess not all that well-known film because i think my initial impression of it and i'm pretty you know open-minded guy is um man this is rough i mean i don't mean that rough in terms of the performances or the production of the film because i've seen movies that oof, are rough to watch this is um the, the first time i saw the uh, the version you were talking about heather the alpha france version i thought there is absolutely no way that this movie could be made today i'm actually amazed it was made when it was made so it's it it is a very interesting uh, piece of work and art and i think that my opinion has changed a little bit but yeah i'm looking forward to uh, really getting into it. conversation on this we're getting into the conversation, that is, not getting an enema. No, 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 no. no, 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 no that's, no, no. A, that's a different episode. No. <laughs> this was one that I remember from the Video Search of Miami catalog being kind of one of these uh, very taboo films that they were touting that they had copies of, kind of along the lines of like Miss Marvel, which was kibashed by Marvel Comics back in the day and turned into Ms. Magnificent and some other things. And there were some things about Jamie Gillis that I'm really not quite sure that I remember correctly, but there were some things called like the Jamie Gillis private home video tapes. And that seemed to kind of play into where water power was some interesting kind of enema, maybe some scat play. I'm not really sure, but Water Power's legend had definitely been around for a lot longer uh, for me than actually having seen it. I finally watched it just a few months ago when we finally decided to do this. And I think, Rob, you actually watched it before I did. And we're talking about the, the Travis Bickle influence and everything. And when I popped it in, it's like, yep, sure enough. I mean, the, the diary and the bicentennial and everything it's like okay and i really kind of appreciated just how well made it was i didn't think for sure that it would be you know this kind of high production quality and i mean yeah we did talk about misty beethoven which i would consider a quote-unquote real movie i mean it is very lavish and everything but there are different layers different strata of pornography and i thought that this might be kind of bottom of the barrel the subject matter kind of is but even with that it is definitely really well made and well acted and i really kind of appreciate that 
Oh, absolutely. No, it's it's funny with water power because I think there's a lot of people, you know, and it's easy to kind of read the description and be like, oh, an enema bandit, you know, <laughs> and like, sure. But then you watch it and I mean, it's a really effective film. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty strong stuff and not for maybe the reasons one would think. I mean, anybody can, you know, use a douchebag and have things flying out of orifices and have it, you know, <laughs> that's gross. And yeah, that's gross, but the impact is only going to really reach that where this film film just uh the use of music and certainly some of the performances definitely kind of you know make an imprint on you i think part of the thing when i first saw it and we'll get into spoilers because the ending really uh i think was part of the the philosophical issue that i had with it but on second viewing and, and like you were saying too is this was at a time where i don't know it seems like to me like 70s porn was always goofy you know, it was like buddy comedy kind of stuff. And this one tries to take porn and sex and blend it with like horror film and thrillers and, you know, really dark uh, places like Taxi Driver. And it really, it really works. And I think that that's why when I first saw it, I said, ugh. Man, this is disturbing, and I, I don't think anyone would uh, – I, I can't believe they made this because, like I said, the impression of 70s porn, whether we're looking at Deep Throat or we're looking at Misty Beethoven, it's always light. It's fun, and you know, if there's bondage in it, it's not like you know, someone's really you know, looking to hurt someone. And this one, it, it straddles that line, but I think that that's really something that is, that is a nod to the acting and, and also the, the director as well. Yeah, this film really lives and dies by Jamie Gillis's performance, and luckily he is such a good actor that he is there for everything. I mean, there's very few times where he's not on screen, and it, I mean, the film starts off with him in uh, kind of a street fair situation, and we've got him going around and looking at everything going on in, in this kind of spirit of 76 that we have, and the whole the beginning of it, it the the opening credits start with a still frame of his eyes with this music from Brian De Palma's sisters playing this Bernard Herrmann score, which is kind of another tie-in to Taxi Driver. And it's just this very interesting way of doing the opening credits because normally you know i i a lot of times with with porn films at least the ones that i'm more familiar with from the 80s and 90s it's you know like kind of a greatest hits type of thing where it's like oh yeah and then there's this actress and then here's this actor and here's you know this person giving a blowjob and here's this guy having sex and all this kind of stuff and with this it's this still frame of his eyes this spooky music going on this very stark you know the the credits coming up and everything and it's like wow okay i'm i'm not used to this and then going from that into his apartment where he's you know spying on his neighbor and it's like okay well that's going to you know eventually pay off and that'll be kind of goofy good fun not really there's not a whole lot of fun with that and he's uh really kind of lost in this world and wandering around the streets and he is going uh through you know the 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 good uh 42nd Street, kind of Times Square area, looking for something that he's not able to get, and eventually goes into this place called the Garden of Eden, where we've got Gloria Leonard, who we talked about also with uh, opening a Misty Beethoven. She's there, and I really kind of like how she's set up. She is in this... Um, 
hammock, but it's really loosely knit, and she's kind of almost like the spider to Jamie Gillis's fly, and she really introduces him to a lot of uh, new ideas with this. And that opening, you know, you talk about that opening shot of his face, and it's still, and I thought of the um like like that last shot in 400 blows or something i mean it, it that sounds already pretentious but the idea is is we get right there there's something with this guy we have to focus on it we have to like understand that this there's something missing he's got this sort of lost behind the eyes thing and we see that as he goes through i mean he does have sort of this little hovel apartment and then he gets to the to to the brothel and he ends up with Sharon Mitchell in this scene and it kind of seems like Sharon Mitchell's more interested, even though she's the prostitute in the scene, of having sex with him than he is with her and becomes really fixated on what Eric Edwards' character who shows up, who's, I guess, a young businessman who goes there to play doctor is doing. Just his presence in the waiting room kind of took me by surprise that he's just kind of hanging out and it's like, what is this guy doing? And he looks so nervous and so tense and it's like, okay, I was really kind of thrown off by that. And then finally when we get why he's there, it's a really nice payoff. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's um, the first scene I ever saw from Water Power was actually um, that scene with, with Eric Edwards and Marlene Willoughby and Gene Silver in that room. And uh, and I, I saw that before I saw the whole film. And I was like, what? I was like, this is the greatest and most bent scene <laughs> I'd ever seen between like Eric's facial reactions during like sort of the climactic scene. Jamie looking like he's screaming. You know, is he climaxing? Is he primal screaming? It's both, you know? It's just all these great, just great elements. And I'm like, this is, yeah. Anybody looking to watch this film for jollies is going to be very disappointed. <laughs> and, and that scene's interesting to me because I think that both Jamie Gillis and Eric Edwards in that scene sort of represent mirror images of each other in terms of an obsession. And what I mean by this is that Eric Edwards plays this doctor role and it's about role play. But for Gillis, it's the dark side. And they're both obsessed with the same thing. And the fact is what you were saying there with the whole you know, climax of both of them at the same time. It's like they're both sharing in the same thing, but they're going in way different directions. You get the idea that Eric Edwards, businessman, comes in, he does this, and he goes home maybe to his wife, goes to his job, whatever he does, he has a normal life. It's just his way of indulging in his obsession is to play this character. While Jamie Gillis's character, Bert, on the other hand, he can't end it there. It's not possible for him. He has to go out and have this override his life in some way and lead to some very dark and criminal places. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's like the scales have been taken away from his eyes, and he is now a, a enema advocate. <laughs> uh, well, and the, the thing, the other thing that's kind of a neat comparison between the two is also, you know, with the Eric Edwards doctor character is this is a man who's con- control. It's kind of about like a control situation, and you only really see him kind of drop that veneer a little bit when he's climaxing. But otherwise, you know, he plays the role of the genial doctor, even kind of patting her on the fanny, patting G on the fanny, and being like, you can always take more than you think, you know? <laughs> Talking about the history of enemas. Meanwhile, you have, you know, Jamie who's watching and just sweating, and just, you know, his eyes are so heavy-lidded, and, you know, you can tell there's something, you know, something is simmering right there that's not healthy good 
I feel kind of bad for Jamie Gillis in this scene, too, because it's like there's such symmetry. As you're talking about, Rob, you've got Eric Edwards and Marlene Willoughby on one side of the mirror with Gene Silver in there. And then on the other side, you've got Jamie and Gloria Leonard. But this is one of the few porn films that I've seen so far with Gloria Leonard where she's not involved in sex at all. And she just kind of says, OK, you know, I got to take care of some stuff up front. So she leaves him alone, really throwing off that symmetry that we have. And I think it also, like I said, it shows that isolation, and it shows just his his obsession. And and I really like the first time I saw that scene, I didn't get it. When I saw it again the second time, I really understood that in a way they're mirroring each other. And it's about how the obsession plays out and how one can live and indulge with an obsession, like fetish, and that's okay. But it can also turn to really dark places. And I was just like, wow, that's that's really brilliant like in terms of setup like i wasn't expecting that the great camera work too though i love just the constant shot of the reflection of like the the doctor scene and then jamie's face like that's some really that's a beautiful really kind of haunting shot okay we're going to take a break here and play an interview with the woman who received that first enema in the film miss gene silver can you tell me a little bit about you growing up it seems like you might have been a little bit of a hellion I'm an Air Force brat. I come from my my mom's was divorced a couple times. I I started getting in trouble. I would say probably like my first year of junior high, I started uh, going the opposite direction my parents would prefer me to go. Now I read that in your early career you were a stripper. Is that true? Actually, I didn't start dancing until um, after I was I did the magazines and films. Which came first, the magazines or the films? The magazine came first and then the film, and then the dancing. I had read about you and Annie Sprinkle getting into trouble for a magazine. Was that at this point, or was this later on? Oh, that was much later. Well, not much later on. I I was 18 when that happened. It was kind of mid-career, still pretty early in the career, I guess. We were in in Rhode Island. There was uh, Jamestown 7, or was it Jamestown 6? I think it was Jamestown 7. They called us for uh, Love and Hate magazine with some people from Italy that were there and we were working on a magazine and apparently there was the girl who was doing, I guess, the secretary part was an undercover agent. She was privy to see everything that was going on. We were there for the weekend doing our thing and as we were all getting ready to leave, state police came other agents came, everybody came, just raided the house and dragged us away to jail. What were the charges? Sodomy, conspiracy to commit sodomy, and conspiracy to circulate pornographic material, which was my charges. Had you been arrested before? Never, never. Well, I can't say I was never arrested. I was arrested when I was 14 in, in uh, Minnesota. But that was long before all this happened. You being an Air Force brat, you must have moved around quite a bit when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't remember being in a school for more than two years max. I was lucky. So I didn't get any longtime friends or anything like that. It was always up and down and back and forth. When you first got into magazines, what kind of shoots were these? Uh, the first magazine I did was for Cherry Magazine. I'd gotten that through Kim Polk's husband. In fact, it was Kim Polk's husband who found, found me and sheltered me because I was sitting on a corner in the rain and had no place to go. I was 16 years old and uh, he kind of brought me in and 
introduced me to Peter Wolf and got me the, the you know the, the centerfold for that magazine. Sounds so lascivious that way, like <laughs> oh, then turned you on to a life of pornography. <laughs> yeah, well, he tried to turn me on to some other things. He tried to he had a uh, I guess a little club that had gambling and prostitution and tried to get me involved in that, and I just I couldn't do it. You know, I just wasn't comfortable with with all the crap that was going on in there and it was scary and uh, it just wasn't for me. So when he realized that, he, you know, I got the, the film, I mean, not the film, the um, magazine with Peter Wolf. He put me in a hotel room and said, goodbye, kid, and took the money for the photo shoot and left me. <laughs> but, you know, hey, at the photo shoot, I met Elvis Stiletto, and I ended up staying with her for a while. And then I met Sharon Mitchell, and uh, I stayed with her for a while. Is she how you kind of got into um, water power? I believe she's the one that hooked me up with that. Can't be a hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure she was the one saying, "Hey, I've got some work if you're interested." And I was like, "Well, I need money." Wasn't quite sure what I was getting into, of course, because you know it was just, "Hey, you're going to you know, do a film," and I'm like, "Okay." When I got there, they were like, "Okay, we want to do this," and I was like, um, uh, <laughs> you know, "Like, oh shit!" <laughs> Literally, you know, I was I was quite nervous about the whole thing. I bet, yeah. To, not only to do your first scene in an adult film, but then also to have that as your first scene. Right, exactly. And, you know, no experience in anything and not really knowing what was going on and how things work. It was it was different. And, you know, I, I guess I managed managed through it. All I just remember from that is actually just being real scared and nervous and embarrassed. It seems like such a complicated scene with you getting the enema and the doctor getting the blowjob and then Jamie Gillis watching in. How long did that take to shoot? You know, I don't have any clue. Um, it just seemed like forever. You know, it's like, okay, can we stop now? <laughs> Hello, I'm tired. <laughs> My butt hurts. <laughs> I can't do this. <laughs> I'm going to explode. <laughs> so that was really you? That was not a stunt ass in that? No. I wish, but, you know, that definitely put me off to anything anal. Was it after that, right after that, that you did Long John Silver? Long Jean Silver? I was going to say, I never did Long John Silver. Um, <laughs> not quite right after that. It wasn't too long. I guess it wasn't too long after that because I ended up going to San Francisco to do some work with the Mitchell brothers on one of their stages. Not at the O'Farrell Theater, but the other one they had on Market Street. Um, I can't remember the name of it. I don't know. Once again, it was another complete put me up on a stage and I had no clue what the hell to do. And they said, well, here, just sit down and talk on the microphone and, and take a leg off and talk about it. And I'm like, really? You know, I'm watching all these girls do burlesque shows and I'm like, okay. <laughs> So, yeah, I found that kind of uncomfortable, you know, just really totally out of my element, you know. And I think the age factor had to do a lot with it, too, you know. I was really young, and and I guess felt, you know, what else was I going to do? I had to survive. I had to put, you know, food in my belly and, you know, keep a roof over my head. That's one thing I don't understand. So you were born in 1960. We're talking 76, 77 here. So underage. And I know that, you know, there was the huge controversy over Tracy Lords just 
what, five, six years later or whatever, I don't know, a little bit more than that, no, nothing was said about you being younger. You just came in, said you were 18, and that was it? Right. They never asked me for ID. They never questioned anything. I think it's the fact that I was such an oddity that I, I guess they were just like, well, she says she's this old, and we're just going to believe it. And, you know, and I, I didn't make qualms or, you know, complain about things and say, well, it was me. I was taken advantage of or anything else like that. Didn't try to ride that Tracy Lord's wave later on, like, and it happened to me, too. No, why should I? You know, Peter Wolf and I were really good friends. Um, I was friends with his wife and, you know, um, lived with him for a while. He was kind of like, a, you know, adopted dad for me and, you know, helped me out with a lot of other things. And there just, there just wasn't that part of me that felt I needed to do that. I made my bed. I laid in it. I was curious about your name. Were, did you adopt the Gene Silver when Long Gene Silver came out? Because you were credited, I think, as Joan Beatty when it was Water Power. Yeah, I didn't get the name Long Gene Silver. I didn't come up with that. Um, Peter Wolf came up with that one. Um, the ID that I was going by um, was the name of Gene Burgess. And uh, that's the name I used to tell everybody I was because they you know, didn't want to use my, my uh, God-given name. <laughs> so, you know, being a runaway and, and uh, AWOL from the State Department of Corrections at the time, you know, of course, I had warrants out for my arrest. Did I forget to mention that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was in the State Department of Corrections, and I escaped uh, oh, wow. quite a few times from there and um, ended up in the hitchhike from, so went to California, then to Florida, then to Pennsylvania, and hitchhiked from Pennsylvania to New York. I was adventurous. Yeah, you had mentioned you had some trouble when you were 14. Was that all from that? It was just because I was uncontrollable, and the state took my parents' rights to to uh, have me away and then put me in a state facility. So you're out on your own and and the star of your own film by your by the time you're 17, 18. I was still 16, I think, when I did Long Jeans Silver. I think I did that before my 17th birthday. What was it like working with Alex Terenzi on that? I don't remember much of that. Uh, I was extremely high on a lot of drugs during that time. It's, it's very spotty. It, it's, it was a time in my period where I was just living on MDA and, and, and love. <laughs> so when did you get clean? When did you kind of turn it around? Um, right after I finished the uh, Long Teen Silver movie, and I was still in San Francisco, and I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I need to get back to New York. I need to get my shit clean. And so I did uh, stayed at a friend's house, did cold turkey for about three weeks. I still had a return plane ticket, and once I was well enough, I got on the plane and went back to New York, and... I was in New York only for probably a few months, and I decided to go back to Arizona and clear up my name with the courts. I turned myself back in. What happened then? They, they, they put me back in the State Department of Corrections for about two months and then let me go because they said, well, you were out on your own all this time. You stayed out of trouble. You weren't arrested. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I stayed out of trouble. I did porn. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, got myself cleared and released legally. So, you know, there wasn't any issues. And uh, pretty much 
stayed clear for most parts, although before I turned 18, I ended up leaving Arizona and driving to, back to California, and I stayed in California for a while and ended up going back to New York. I flew back to New York with, oh, God, was in Halstone, and I went back to New York, and uh, that's where I met, oh, God, what was his name? Ugh. He had a radio show or something. Uh, Franklin. Franklin. Al Franklin. Al Franklin? Yes. I think it was Ben. Or Franklin. No, it was something Franklin. I don't know. Yeah. It's a muddled. It's a muddled thing. <laughs> As I claimed before, I was doing a lot of drugs back then. So, you know, there's a lot of things I, I don't have complete clear knowledge of or or memory of. Someday maybe, you know, it'll all come back to me or I'll get hypnotized or something. Finally learn the truth. So you're living a little bit better of a life. You're still doing adult films at the time? Um, When I went back to New York, the first thing I did was I took my birth certificate and called Peter Wolf and met him at the bar down the street from the Cherry Magazine office and said, hey, Peter, I've got something for you. Here's my birth certificate. What did he say? He was like, oh, And I said, don't worry, I'm not going to say anything. I said, but I just want to let you know I know I'm legal now and I can do more work. So did you kind of jump back into it with... with uh... Yeah, I kind of moved back in and stayed with him for a while. And and I ended up moving in with Carter Stevens, and he was my roommate for a while. And I've had various roommates, Carter Stevens, Fred Lincoln, for a while also, when Tiffany Clark and Fred Lincoln, I lived with them for a while. Um, I lived... Uh, Annette Hines and I were roommates. Uh, then I, you know, had my own apartments here and there. So I moved around a lot. You can the Air Force in me. Can never never take the, the brat out of the Air Force brat? Yeah, I guess. You know, I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a wizard packing. you got one really good skill, <laughs> right? One, I, could, I say I have one really skill that's packing. It's a good one to have. You make <laughs> everything fit. Yeah. I can pack real good. I'm packing. I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to do that. I'll just leave half of the pack. Make it easier for the next time. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself kind of pigeonholed with what roles that you were playing or anything? Or Oh, yeah. There was a lot of times where people were like, well, we can't use you because, you know, this is your, your specialty. We don't want to, you know, use the legs thing. You know, it's like, well, you don't have to, you know. It's not all about the legs thing. You know, I don't want to be known as that's the only thing I can do. Carter Stevens pulled me into making sure I had roles that didn't involve all of that, you know, and same with Fred Lincoln and, you know, as I got further down the line, all the other people. Now, from what I can discern, it looks like your last film was Piggies in 1986. Does that sound right? That sounds about right. I think that's about when I decided to quit everything and quit dancing, quit everything and uh, go into bartending. And by 1989, I was pregnant with my daughter. So, you know, it was a good time to, to stop. What made you change your mind about what you'd been doing? Just tired and the fact that people were getting really sick, you know, the AIDS epidemic was starting to rear its ugly head and, you know, the fear of having something like that. We didn't have, you know, the the medical checks like everybody, you know, does now. And, you know, you had to take somebody's word that, you know, oh, I don't use needles or, you know, I'm not messing with somebody who's doing needles. And it was was more like a crap shoot. And I didn't like playing craps. So I thought, 
you know, I'm, I'm healthy now and it's time, you know, and, and, and plus it was going from, from film to video and it, it just seemed to, everything seemed to be changing too much. I don't know. I just didn't enjoy it anymore. So what's it like for you when you move back and you start bartending? Were you able to just kind of put all that behind you and settle down or were you still this kind of wild child? Oh, I was still wild. I was, you know, still the party girl and, and stuff like that until I got pregnant, you know. So, I mean, I bartend. I had a lot of fans that would come in. Uh, a lot of the girls from the Melody would come in because I worked right basically across the street from the Melody Theater and right down the street from Bernard's. So, you know, it was still the same people that I would see, not quite as often because I was always working and I wasn't involved with all of the other stuff, you know. Eventually, you know, I got seeing people less and less and pretty much at one point it was just I never saw anybody. How about these days with social media and everything? Do you ever catch up with any of your old Oh, yeah. If it wasn't for Facebook, I wouldn't have caught up with anybody at all. And so I, I, I did the, the Gene Silver page a few years ago. I hadn't been in contact with anybody. And then once I did that page, you know, all of a sudden it was like, hey, oh, my God, how have you been? You know, blah, blah, blah. I've reconnected with a lot of people. And Ed and I reconnected with uh, Tiffany Clark and I reconnected. I reconnected with Fred Lincoln before he passed away, Carter Stevens, Herschel, Joey Silvera, I got Annie Sprinkle, Candida, all of those people. What are you up to these days? Oh, about 5'5". Five, five. I shrunk a little bit. <laughs> these days, I... Um, I help elderly people kind of prepare for death. I'm kind of like a companion for them. Um, I I get references. You know, one person calls and says, hey, you helped my mother. You know, I heard good things about you from this lady from the church. And I'm like, that's great because I don't belong to that church, but sure, you know. So um, I basically spend time with elderly people. So when you look back on your, your adult film career, any highlights for you? Anything, any really fond memories for you? You know, I, you know, I take it as it was an experience. It was a wild ride. There was good things. There was bad things. I loved hanging out with Mitch. She, she was probably one of my best friends during that time. Loved hanging out with Annie um, and Annette Hines. And, you know, we had our close little knit groups at times. But, in you know, in some ways I was still always like somewhat of a little bit of a loner. I always kind of kept myself separate. I always, I don't know if I did it on purpose or if it's just my personality. And I mean, you know, I left the business and I hid. You know, most people didn't like hear from me for like 30 years. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, she's still alive. You know, once, you know, reconnected with every, you know, a lot of people, it's been nice to having that, you know, that feeling of, you know, the closeness and, and, you know, being able to laugh at the things that we did and, and, you know, go, oh my God, I can't believe we did that. Or, oh my God, that was so funny we did that. You know, it, it, it's, it's nice. It's nice to have that. I 
right, we're back and we're talking about water power. Before we go ahead with our examination of the film, let's talk a little bit about the real enema bandit, Michael H. Kenyon, on whom this movie was very loosely based. I had never heard of the real enema bandit, but apparently, Rob, you had heard of him before this? Well, I had heard of him through the side channel. Someone had created a piece of art, which would be Frank Zappa wrote a song in 1976 called The Illinois Enema Bandit. And the song's pretty much just reporting of what happened. And it's sung by Ray White, who's the guitarist and vocalist who often played with Zappa during the 70s and 80s. And he basically talks about, you know, how this guy's on the loose and he's looking at the co-eds and he's doing all this stuff. And it's, it's done in traditional Frank Zappa-esque sense of humor and musicality. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I looked it up and then found out that it was actually based on a real guy. And according to what I've been able to find out, Michael Kenyon was the enema bandit and supposedly had done a series of armed robberies on women in the Champaign, Illinois area starting in 1966. He moved to Kansas, Oklahoma, and then Los Angeles, returned to Illinois again, Champaign, and Chicago area. And in December of 75, he pled guilty to five counts of armed robbery and was uh, locked up for six years and was paroled in the early 80s. So I don't know what happened in terms of the um, the one – it seems like he had dozens of these that happened to all these different states. But the only ones he was ever charged with were the ones that he did later in the early 70s when he moved to Chicago. Since then, it doesn't appear that he's uh, gone back to his ways. Uh, it appears he's still alive from the uh, – Wikipedia entry, and you can read a lot of the old newspaper clippings and things like that from the various uh, newspapers there if you're interested in more about this guy. Yeah, I really tried my best to track down more information about him, and what I got was a lot of rumor and hearsay and nothing really kind of concrete. I even tried to t- track down Michael Kenyon himself. Unfortunately, there's an author also known. <laughs> named Michael Kenyon. So I kept coming up with him instead of this guy and even uh, tried to look him up through the online criminal database and tried to see, you know, if I could find out more information about him that way and was unable to. But I, I really wanted to find out kind of what was motivating this guy because I suppose that him being in this position of giving enemas to these women, it's kind of a rape but at the same time, not really. But I definitely see it as him being in a position of power with them being very helpless. But just such an interesting, I don't know, Freudian connotation to this that I can't necessarily wrap my head around. But at the same time, I would say that it I would consider it rape because, as we know, really rape's not about sex so much as it is about power and control. And I would say that forcing someone to, to have an enema is about power and control. I'm not familiar with that case. I've heard the Zach a song and um that's about it the I, I will say that my favorite enema song though is the teenage enema nurses in bondage by killer pussy which is a great new wave song uh but that has nothing to do with enema bandits i was kind of surprised that they referred to bert as an enema bandit because really he didn't seem to take anything he was just you know there for the the enema and the sex but he didn't seem to be kind of motivated by monetary gain whatsoever no, he he was cleaning women out for uh, the, from the goodness of his heart. 
if that's I think that was his motivation. But uh, geez, yeah, it's it's a dark. I don't, it's funny rewatching it. I rewatched it this morning, and um, I've seen you know a number of referees from the period, yeah, of the seventies, like you know Zebedee Colt, Sex Wish, Femmes de Sod by Alex Dorenzi. That to say, Water Power is definitely up there. It's a very harrowing film, and you know, unlike uh, unlike both of those films, which at least have one or two scenes that are actually kind of composed erotically and sensually to kind of give you a respite from the rape and torture and <laughs> all of that. Um, there's really nothing at all. There's not one scene in Water Power that I think is really composed to be sexy. Because even even like the Sharon Mitchell scene, yeah, I mean, he seems a little disinterested. The camera angles, the use of angles in that are not very, it's done in this sort of awkward like up angle. So you're never really as a viewer left to feel comfortable. Like you always feel like they're overlording you or something when you shoot people like that, like they're towering over you. And even the scene with Clea Carson, like the stewardess and her boyfriend, I mean, he's watching the whole time being like, you whore. And so there's really, there's not one really sexy thing. You know, all of the consensual, consensual sex scenes are kind of tainted. And water power. Yeah, and I think it helps. We'll talk a little bit more about the um, the alternate cut of this, but the alternate cut kind of puts the scene with the two sisters intercuts that with the scene of the two cops, and that seems to kind of add back in that tension. Whereas separating those two scenes and having them separate with the girls and Gillis, and then the two cops together, that may allow the cop scene to be a little bit more sensual, but cutting those two things back together, you have that tension added back in. It's like, oh God, you know, you can't escape it. You can't escape either Gillis verbally assaulting these women while he's right there, while he's looking at them, or while he's writing his diary. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you really can't escape from his presence and his psychosis, as it were. And it's that psychosis and it's that obsession that is, I mean, ultimately at the core of what he's about when it comes to the neighbors is, you know, he is a voyeur and that, and then he gets upset when he's watching the the neighbor with her boyfriend or whoever, and then feels that the best thing he can do is to give her an enema because then that will flush out all the bad things and she'll fall in love with him because it'll you know remove this horrible taint <laughs> and dirt that's inside of her. It's a it, it's a very uh, like you were saying it's, it's a very hard thing to kind of you, you can't have fun with it. Like I said, this this movie kind of flies in the face of most seventies porn that I've seen. Is you know, it's kind of hey, it's light and fun, and you know, and ridiculous. This is not light and fun, or ridiculous. No, and I, I've seen other works from Costello and his stuff. I mean, th- I've only seen a handful, so I can't judge his entire filmography from just a few films. But the ones of his that I have seen have all kind of had this intensity to it. So his his work like um, Force Entry and Dominatrix Without Mercy, it's like, this is not like a frothy fun time that we're just going to like, hey, let's head over to the porn store or see what they have. Oh, let's pop this and this will be a, a good time. No, these things are very dark, and you really actually have to sit down and think while you're watching this, and you might not even feel the need to, you know, put your hands down your pants. I hope not. I would be frightened to meet the person that's sexually excited by by water power. I mean, it's it's some rough stuff. Um, as far as Costello goes, he's an interesting director because I've actually written about 
a few of his films and um, including some of his real early, like kind of one day wonder stuff like Kathy's graduation, which is definitely more in the school of what you guys are talking about, of kind of the silly, you know, kind of more silly, goofy kind of porn. Um, he did a film called Midnight Desires, which also has Jamie and Eric Edwards and CJ Lang in it. And um, that one's kind of more, it's not quite as intense, certainly as um, like Forced Entry or Water Power, but it, it has, it does have that more of a darker edge to it. But then like one of the last films, it may have been the last film he did, but I wrote an article about called Hot Dreams with Sharon Mitchell and Tiffany Clark. And that one's just real light and very, um, you know, kind of more sensual. So I don't know. I, he kind of uh, went all across the board, I think. Yeah, if there is an appeal, an erotic appeal to enemas, um, it's definitely not in this film. If this is not made to, I imagine, please the enema crowd, um, <laughs> however big or small that they are. <laughs> the conventions are very messy. Yeah. Well, you know, at one point he's reading a uh, magazine called Water and Power. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it may be from the same publisher is car and driver and better homes and gardens so there you go explain so much <laughs> yeah i i actually i looked around robbie didn't you find a uh, copy of water and power yeah it's in the adult section of ebay there's a uh, sort of lockdown adult section where you can find all kinds of interesting stuff and um they actually had i think it was the exact same magazine that's in the film so oh wow yeah because i was looking for that at one point because i was like i really want to know what the appeal is i want to know the terminology i want to know you know where um where these desires come from because there are other things where it's like okay i can kind of see that and then there are other fetishes that are just like so off the map where it's just like you have to be fucking kidding me. I cannot see the appeal, such as like things like furries. <laughs> you, know, the, the, you know, the thing with enemas to me, the only thing that I can think of, uh, I, I don't think of them in, in an erotic way. I think of them in two different ways. One is from – and there was a film made on him, and he's from Michigan, and we have to thank him for the cornflakes – is is John Harvey Kellogg and the sanatorium that he had in the late 1800s in Battle Creek, which included – Anthony Hopkins in the film, you know, saying that he was going to pump 10 gallons of yogurt up someone's behind and the whole idea that flushing out the system in that way was, you know, healthy for you during this big, you know, health food and, and healthy living kick in the late 1800s. Nurse Graves! Yes, Doctor? Take Mr. Lightbody immediately to the yogurt room and give him 15 gallons. Oh, no, no, I can't eat 15 gallons of yogurt. Oh, it's not going in that end, Mr. Lightbody. The other one that I think of, and we talked a little bit about this on The Devils, is it's not in the film so much as it is in the book by Aldous Huxley, is how enemas were used as part of um, exorcisms and part of the church's effort to do investigations into the possessed and doing that as a way to force out bad things. And this whole idea of bad humors and things like that goes way back. It goes back to like the ancient Greeks and the idea that you have like these certain sets of liquids in your body and if those get out of balance and that causes disease. So this is all very sort of medieval ideas and earlier then that's the thing I think of. I don't necessarily think of them in an erotic way. I think of them more as punishment or bizarro health claims. Well, wasn't Kellogg, isn't he partially responsible for 
before the um, circumcision boom of the early 1900s? Yeah, he believed it. You know, jerking off was um, would you know curve your spine and lead to being an imbecile and, and all kinds of things. And he was part of that big boom for uh, circumcising of men for non-religious reasons, uh, so that uh, supposedly boys wouldn't touch themselves and. Cornflakes supposedly was supposed to be a health food that was supposed to calm you down and drive away your sexual potency. So the next time you have a bowl of cornflakes, thank Mr. Kellogg for that. Speaking of uh, the Water and Power magazine, I don't know if you guys noticed, and this may be just a mere coincidence, but in the um, earlier scene with the Garden of Eden, uh, Sharon Mitchell's character is reading The Ascent of Man. Yeah, the Bronowski book. So I thought that was sort of interesting. It might have been just something she brought with her on the set. I don't know if it has any... Uh any connection to the film, you know, as far as an intentional commentary on the on human civilization, but uh, might be interesting to know. So we're going to take a break and play the rest of our interview with Sharon Mitchell, Eve in Water Power. Now, the first part of this we played back in our Smoker episode, and you haven't heard that. You should go back and get that. But in this section, we talk a lot about her time working at a specific, uh, I guess you could say brothel in New York. Maybe it was kind of the same as what you see in Water Power, and about enemas in some of the clientele who she took the host to. You've been in some, I guess I would call them notorious films. I was curious what it was like working on Water Power. Water Power? <laughs> I'm so glad you asked me that. It was fucking awesome because, you know, Jamie Gillis, one of my, you know, one of my favorite, favorite people. Jamie uh, Gillis and John Leslie kind of took me in as the little sister. Uh, because they saw me early on, because I never really believed. I had always represented myself, for the most part. I mean, an agent would get me a job, but I would make the deal for myself. And and I think Jamie overheard something one day and said, no, 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 no. You know, this is, you know, and, and, and he kind of took me under his wing. So it was always an honor and a privilege to work with those type of guys, because they really did, you know, they really protected me in, in, in such a wonderful way. Uh, that I learned how to negotiate, you know, money and and uh, my art for myself. And so this movie was actually based on, you know, the Enema Bandit, which was actually a true person. And Jamie played that person. And Marlene Willoughby as the fucking nurse. Who's better than Marlene Willoughby? I mean, she's like the fucking Joan Crawford of early porn. And Ron Jean Silver. I mean, my God, and me, and you know, I mean, how can you get a better cast than that to portray this? And we had such a blast. And my favorite scene out of that whole movie is <laughs> Marlene is wheeling Ron Jean down. I think she was in a wheelchair or something, and and she was, you know, letting her know that she's about to receive this enema or so on and so forth. And and she says, "Nurse, uh, I, 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 I'm not quite sure if I really need an enema." And Marlene, in her inimitable way, says, Yes, you do, dear. We all do. I think that was just, it's just a classic. It's like I look back on that as I look back on Mildred Pierce, you know? I just fucking love it. Oh, I, I, I just watched it recently, and the thing that amazed me is it almost feels like if, if, if someone were to go, Okay, this is an equivalent film, it, I mean, obviously your experience of making it is different, but watching it, it it's like Taxi Driver or something. It's that oh, sort it's of intense. Oh, it's totally creepy, and 
And there were so many movies. I mean, Gerard Damiano directed all those bizarre movies that we did. Let's not forget, some of them probably aren't even in you know print anymore. But I mean, they always had a horrific, horrible ending, and one of us always died. And we always died with a stunt, whether it was you know shooting yourself with a pistol in the vagina or having to. I mean, I had to fall in 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 a pool with lights before they really had the technology to do that, so you had to kind of unplug yourself from the squibs and all the electronic stuff before you fell in, but still looked like you were dying, and Jamie was playing a, you know, a, <laughs> you know, a, a shell-shocked Vietnam vet, and I mean, we had a fucking blast. Who had it better than us back then? Really? Who had it better than us? Did you get to use any of your enema training on that film? Yes, yes, and of course I did. And you know what? Um, uh, Lou Reed is now dead. So I mean, you know, I love Lou, but he was one of my biggest, <laughs> my biggest clients for speed animals. And you know, I don't. <laughs> uh, and that's the truth. And you know, Lori can come back and sue me, but that's the truth. And there are people that are still alive that I would just love to drop names. I'm in the middle of writing a book, and I'm trying to figure out how can I, you know, how can I. <laughs> How can I say this in a diplomatic way? But the truth is, I'm not diplomatic. <laughs> and nothing that I've ever done has been fucking diplomatic. So I'm just laying it out as it was, you know? Uh, it makes me so glad to hear that you're writing a book of all this, because it, it sounds like you've had just such an amazing life. I really, truly have. I've been so blessed. I've been so blessed. I wanted to ask you about The Taming of Rebecca. What was that one like? Oh, The Taming of Rebecca was fantastic. That was another crazy kind of, Ooh, we're going to pierce somebody, we're going to pierce people, you know? So they brought me in, of course, to the piercing of, uh, I forget her name, the little, little, little chick, Jeanette or whatever her name was. And, you know, and the truth is that, you know, in the movies, you know, uh, I, I should say this, but she was already pre-pierced, you know. But um, not that I hadn't pierced a lot of people for real, but um, that was just, that was the first of its kind. I mean, that was like really, really controversial, even for adult entertainment back then. Because don't don't forget that that's when we were still mixing sex and bondage and S&M and fetish and fantasy before everything got kind of muddled and, you know, uh, separated. So that was a big deal. And that looked real. I mean, that looked, oh, I know. It was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is, it was very intense. I was, I was really kind of happy to see it. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, and that's, that's my whole point of art in adult entertainment as it pertained to my experience and the time that I was privileged to perform. You can't do that with someone that just walks in and you say, okay, we're going to take this and we're going to do this. You really have to, you really have to feel those characters. You really have to feel that situation. You really have to be directed by a master of film and be shot by someone who has a respect for cinematography to put that all together. That is you know, a compilation of art. It's it's erotica. It's the you know the beginning of the beginning of, of what it was. That can't be on the fly. You know, that can't be done with a handful of fucking Viagra and a you know a fucking cell phone. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe it can. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it can. But it certainly doesn't quite look the same to me right now. 
I mean, I don't want to sound like, well, bye, cracky in my day, but, you know, I guess I'm sounding like that, you know? I know that you you know, you were kind of crossing over from um, porn to straight as you went along, and you said that there was kind of that time when you just kind of had to embrace the, the porn. But I was curious about um, Night of the Juggler. What? How did you get involved with that film? I'm sure it was my agent, Dorothy. I was a good actress. They needed someone to be nude, and God knows none of the actresses back then wanted to be nude. You know, so I was like, well, fuck it. I'm fucking for a living anyway. I mean, you know, in front of a camera and I'm performing and this is, you know, this is, I, what's the difference, you know? And, and, and James Bowen and I and Richard Castellano and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, we had a great time. It was just a great time. It was, uh, it was a good, ta- it was just a, yet another character to play, you know, which I enjoyed. I never really made the difference in my head. I I had resolved myself to that a long time ago because there was such a stigma that was brewing about legitimate and, and adult. And, and, and I thought to myself, who the fuck has the right to call me illegitimate? Who has that right? Only I do, you know? And so in my head, I didn't draw the line, and I just left it open. And if work came, whichever way it came, I was I was privileged to do it. And there were a lot of things that, of course, I refused because they're just some things you don't sacrifice, like the good champagne, the good lingerie, your asshole. I mean, you know, there's just some things that a girl keeps sacred. <laughs> when you look over the the work that you've done, what are some of the films that you know that you recommend to people? Say, hey, you know, you should check this one out, or this one's really good. Or I was proud of this one. Anything that I've ever done by Gerard Damiano, Smoke, uh, of course, Joy, my first film, which was just just a wonderful, wonderful movie. You know, we got to remember this was all shot on Panavision and Panaflex and rehearsals, and I mean, we you know we'd shoot on locations in the subway and Newark Airport wings were closed down for us to do this. I mean, there was no distinction by anybody else back then. Upsides Beyond Shame with Seika, anything that ever included my best friend and my mentor, who I miss terribly, Freddie Lincoln, anything that included Jamie Gillis, only because, you know, of the two words, ah, yes, you know, (laughs) which he would always say upon ejaculation. You know, whatever turns you on, basically, but... I think, for the most part, I think my favorite time was during the mid-70s to the 80s and the evolution from and the tra- uh, transition and the geographic from uh, New York to San Francisco and those that kind of a mini golden age when video was dawning, but yet we still had the artists that were producing and directing and lighting using video cameras or, or shooting on film to transfer the video, uh, which picked up the pace quite a bit, uh, but still using that cinematic style. Um, the Lewis Brothers, Kamikaze Hearts, which I've done with Tigger, where I actually shot Coke, I think, on film. You know, I mean, I really put myself out there in, in a lot of different ways that I never thought I would. I would never cross that line um, as an entertainer. I you know I, I worked, I, I did a lot of live performance and dancing. I toured with the Mars Band Dance Company for a while and when I was younger and I was on the road promoting things and, and dancing all over the world, you know, with rock and roll and burlesque. Uh, that's back before strip bars, by the way. That's when you actually went to a movie theater 
that had a stage that showed your a couple of your movies and you would come do a, a burlesque number and uh, you had to have a certain criteria to make the massive amount of money that they paid you back then per week. And the bar just seemed to be set very, very high back then. And, and I was just so privileged to just kind of set that bar and jump over it, you know, and then help others, you know, work through it uh, eventually, you know, um, in the clinical field. For you, when you were actually doing the productions, what was sort of the best thing about it and the worst thing about making the films? The best thing was the camaraderie. And I'll bet we all say that um, because we knew each other so well. And I mean, we knew each other's faults, shortcomings, um, uh, exceptional qualities, and we were unconditionally loved by each other and supported. And uh, there was no, with that type of a feeling on a set, there's no limit to what you can create. I would say the worst thing about it was, truthfully, knowing that you can't please everybody. And there's just going to be some fucking people that are just going to hate you for what you represent. And if anybody says that deep down that doesn't bother them, I think they might be bending the truth a little bit because it does hurt. Uh, it does hurt. Um, I've had stones thrown at me. I've been cursed. I've been called horrible names. I haven't been able to keep relationships um, because of that. It's been a sacrifice. But ultimately, it was always worth it. I think seeing people taken advantage of when the industry started evolving and the budgets became less and less, and then I was producing and directing, I was terribly unhappy, terribly unhappy at that time because I felt like I was... Uh, asking people to do things that I really wouldn't do myself, and I just felt like I was whoring myself out, and that was really a very dark time for me. There was just no secret that there was a lot of drugs involved uh, at that time uh, with myself, and I was just in a very dark place, and I just did not like the, the way... I just didn't fit in. I just didn't fit into what the industry was becoming. I saw the budgets getting lower and lower, and the the sex acts getting more and more prevalent and there was a separation between plot and sex and the negotiations were not for the art encompassing the sex but were more for per body part, per scene, per partner and and producing and directing, I just felt like I was whoring myself out. Not that I don't love whores, love them. You know, I'm just using that as an expression. I just did not feel good. I did not feel happy. Um, and, uh, you know, I loved heroin and the heroin, uh, really, really, you know, thank God enabled me to get through that very dark time in my life because, <laughs> you know, um, because it made me numb to a lot of things that I don't think I would have been able to face had I not had that, that little bit of a boost to function each day. You took quite an interesting turn there, like going and deciding to get a doctorate. After having this one career, you completely start another career. Well, that's because, and the heroin again had a lot to do with that and the drugs and and the industry changing and, and me getting older and not feeling like it. I just wasn't fucking happy, man. And if you know you're not happy, you know, all the drugs in the world, um, they're not going to do it for you. I mean, it works for quite a while. And believe me, it worked for many, many, many years. But the truth is you're going to run out and you're going to want more, whether it's money, whether it's drugs, whether it's what you used to have, whether it's passion, no matter what it is. You know, life has taught me that things run out and they fall short. And it's really up to you as a human being to, you know, realize, okay, if I'm going to be alive, fuck it, I might as well have some letters after my name, you know? 
I was not aware of my surroundings, and I was working at a less-than-stellar cabaret. And basically, you know, at this point, I had like a $300 a day heroin habit, which is quite a lot. And, um, I, you know, I had downsides from my beautiful home on the beach and, and all the luxuries and wonderful things that my life had afforded me uh, through, you know, bad marriages, you know, bad pickers, and then, you know, the drugs and running out and uh, just basically life happening. You know, life shit happens, life happens. And I was not aware of my surroundings, and I was terribly attacked by uh, a crazed fan who had an obsession with Jesus Christ and S&M, and, and they were in the front row of my audience at the time. And, you know, I got nothing against Jesus Christ or S&M, by the way, but uh, this person had a very unhealthy mix of both and, and stalked me and uh, followed me into my home, and I was not aware of my surroundings. I All I could think about was I had to get home. I had to feed my bird, who I still have today, by the way. I have a parrot, a, a macaw, 38 years old. I still have her. And, and a fix, you know. I had to feed my bird and fix, and I was unaware that someone was stalking me and tried to kill me and proceeded to break my nose and bite holes in my face and my back. And, I mean, I, I mean tried to rape me. I mean, this was this was a prize fight without a bell. I mean, it was about 13, 17 minutes. I don't know. I, I mean, I the only reason I won this is because I kept kicking things over and making, you know, making noise because there was no one that lived underneath me and, and the person was very large and very, very upset and they had drunk dick, obviously. I mean, I thought, well, if you want to rape me, I mean, at some point, you know, a girl just goes, okay, fuck it, I'll bend over. Let's deal with this before this fucker kills me, you know? And and he had drunk dick, so he got mad and proceeded to strangle me and crush my larynx so I couldn't scream and I passed out and I woke up choking on my own blood and I thought, Jesus Christ, man, after all the dope that I'd shot... You know, all the places I've been on Earth, dancing naked in thunderstorms with tons of tequila in my system, off balconies, off, you know. I mean, just, you know, I mean, all the very crazy, wonderful shit that I've done. I'm not going to go out by this fucker's hand, you know. And I just did not want to die by this person's hand. And uh, so I, I rolled over and I picked up a weight, which was probably five or ten pounds, but it felt like 50 after that long of a struggle. And I said, God, who I hadn't really talked to in a really long time, obviously, I said, I'm going to bring this thing down. And if I don't beam this fucker on the back of the head, please let me crush my own skull because I don't want to give him the privilege of taking me out. I thought, I really didn't have many choices. It was either him or me. So I thought, you know, and lo and behold, I beamed the fucker on the back of the head. And, uh, that was the, that was the change. That was like, you know what? You're not, you're not happy. Um, you, you're not in a lifestyle that you really enjoy. You've got wonderful friends who are supportive, but basically you've got a bunch of dirty laundry. You're in an apartment that you really don't like. Thank God you've got the bird and you've got just a massive heroin habit. And if you're going to live, you need to do something a little bit better, honey. You deserve a lot better. And so do, so, so does everybody else that's around you. Uh, cause obviously you don't realize until you get clean that you're really hurting everybody. And, and I went in, and I, at that time I was 38 years old, and it was the mother of all detoxes. Don't ever kick when you're old, you know. If you know any old addicts, please tell them to kick sooner than later, because that fucking hurt. Um, but uh, I, 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 you know, there was a gentleman who produced and directed uh, all of the um, um, John Holmes movies that became a very good friend of mine. And he was the only guy that I knew that had a really bad habit. I mean, he was with cocaine, but... I had saw him get clean and go back to school and, 
get his doctorate, and it was it was like the only guy that I knew that I could see proof, and he helped me, he helped me go back to school, and uh, within 30 days, I didn't know what I was going to be, but I knew that I wanted uh, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't know what kind, and gosh, a couple of years later, then the industry had an HIV outbreak, and uh, I was you know interning, and one of the doctors said, "I'll loan you my license," and and I figured out this protocol for testing for negativity and screening for negativity rather than positivity. And, and one thing led to the other. And before I knew it, I was in knee deep with my education and being of service to the industry. And then it just became a gigantic business. And, and the truth is that after 13 years of that, doing it so well and, you know, being so groundbreaking with the types of testing and the applications that I was doing, uh, you know, the local and federal governments, they wanted that. They did not like me. They did not like me from where I came from. From. Um, they did not want to work with me. They wanted me to make a choice uh, and to work, you know, against the producers and for the talent and so on and so forth. And I was like, no, man, this is a fucking nonprofit. It's adult industry medical. It's for everybody. The producers donate. In turn, you know, I have a system where they can download the clean bills of health for people, and and then and the people I pre-educate them so they come in when they have an STD and they give me a list of their partners and I'm able to pull people aside, put them on quarantine if they have an STD, retest them, I mean, medicate them, retest them, put them back into the thing. And and HIV, you know, uh, outbreaks were very, very rare, you know, during the entire time. I mean, this application worked very well. And, and I was really a kind of a black, I found myself being a black sheep in this area where I knew I was just an altruistic, you know, sincere being of service. And the industry was terrified. They weren't sure if they could fund me. They didn't want to put so much money into taking care of the talent because OSHA was on their ass and so on, and they were on my ass. And, I mean, there was just there was just investigation after investigation after lawsuit after lawsuit, and I kept taking it to federal court, and I kept winning. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, I got this slap of a, that I was unlicensed, I was not licensed, that I, the type of clinics that I was running, at this point, I was running three clinics and uh, also doing online throughout the United States. I was partnering with Unilab and LabCorp, and I mean, we're helping the entire industry stay literally on the same page with the same information and keeping folks healthy. And, you know, they just said that I needed a license that was like the size of Mount Sinai or Cedar Sinai. And then I realized I'm fighting the ocean. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. It's like sweeping the ocean back with a broom. These fucking people don't like me. The industry comes in to make up their mind to support me. The talent, you know, it can't be all put on them because these poor fuckers are making less and less money for sacrificing more and more Things. And by the way, I'm in a situation where I'm seeing hideous and horrible bodily violations on a daily basis, both emotional, physical, and everything else. And um, and I was I was just spent. I, I I just at some point I had to say, you know what? You've done everything that you can possibly do. If you don't if you don't get out now and try to heal yourself one more time and try to morph one more time, then this is going to consume you. And it did consume me. The truth is, I've been in a terrible depression for the past three years, um, more, which I'd never been in my entire life. Um, I didn't go into a full relapse with drugs, but I went into a relapse
obsessed with alcohol, and I just felt horrible. I just felt violated. I felt insulted. I felt cast aside. Uh, I just felt awful. I just couldn't look at any of the good that I did for people, any of the lives that I'd saved, you know, any of the multiple wonderful things that I had done, you know, for myself and others. I just couldn't look at that. I just felt so ostracized. Um, I moved up to the mountains. And I have, I've had to heal, you know, and I've, I've been healing. And, um, you know, I'm happy to say that, obviously, I'm, you know, sober and clean again, obviously, doing quite well, um, writing, being able to take a look at, uh, at my life and in a positive way and accepting those negative feelings that I've had. Um, but it, it has not been an easy last couple of years. That was like beyond the spit in the face. I mean... And I, you know, and, you know, I mean, it was a horrible thing because you've got everyone, you know, all your buddies from the medical field, all other doctors and, and, you know, um, you know, you, you, you know, you've just got, got so much support from the research and medical field going, wow, you really got fucked. Wow. You really got fucked. (laughs) Which doesn't really help (laughs) when you're in the middle of trying to fight this like strange situation and, I don't think anybody will ever be in that situation again because it was such a weird place to be in. It was like the, you know, you know, they, it was like I was turned into an advocate for unsafe sex or, you know, and I had a, another very, very, you know, uh, indignant and wealthy nonprofit agency picketing out front of my clinic and, Putting legislature into you know I mean it was it was unbelievable and um, and the story has to be told because um, I'm not so sure that it has to do with uh, adult entertainment necessarily or whatever but it really has to do with uh, what you were saying earlier a lot of the values that we you know that we pr- pride ourselves on our options as Americans I mean where else can a girl go from you know sucking cock in front of a camera to you know, running, you know, clinics with 3,800 patients, you know, uh, a month and uh, exercising her brain and doing a great job. But just because who she's serving is knocked down and put out of business because of I did my job too well and somebody else wants that protocol and you can't patent a protocol in the U.S. And, you know, and if you're running a nonprofit, governments can legitimately come in and take anything. And the truth was they wanted the records. They wanted the names of all my patients and they wanted to use them so OSHA could go and uh, serve the large companies up and, and get money from them or whatever. I'm happy to say that I devised a way to make sure that that did not happen. So I went out and I kind of had the last laugh because nobody ever got what they wanted. But neither did I. I just wanted to be of service to the people where I came from. It was an honor to me. It was a privilege and it was something I truly enjoyed. And I had to kind of refashion my entire my entire life in another way. And I'm doing that. I'm in the process of doing that. But it's taken me, it'll be three years and two months to heal. I mean, it's really taken me a lot of time to heal. All right, we're back, and we're hoping not to hear from Lou Reed's widow, Lori Anderson's lawyers, as we continue to talk about water power. Well, maybe she's tied up suing that uh, salon that we just heard about that she got stuck in, what was it, their air chamber or something? Yeah, what the hell? That was crazy. Their Yelp ratings are going to go way down, I think, after that. You know, speaking of water power, uh, did you know that the Hoover Dam 
was built during the Great Depression and opened in 1935, and 112 people died. Let's talk a little bit more about Bert. I mean, he kind of goes on this... I don't know, like a, a, I don't want to say a spree, more like a rampage. He he goes over and terrorizes the uh, stewardess across the, sorry, the flight attendant across the way. And that scene, I mean, that's the first, because it's the second enema that we get in the film, but really the first one was much more of a controlled setup. And it seemed like Gene Silver was, I won't say that she was into it, but it was definitely, you know, this is part of what Eric Edwards had paid for. And then the the woman across the the way gets a lot more than she bargained for with this. And I don't necessarily it, it whether the actress is really good or whether it was true. It didn't seem like she was really enjoying herself with this one. No, no, I was. I think actually, out of all the scenes, as far as the attack scenes in this film, that one to me, especially seeing the uh, extended cut, which I know we're going to talk about here in a little bit, seeing more of that scene uh, was definitely the roughest and the most disturbing. And part of that, I mean, Clea Carson, um, who's kind of more of a cult actress, um, but she's usually good. She's in. Um, you can see in her couple of uh, Radley Metzger's films, like I know she has a small part in uh, Maraschino Cherry. I think she's in Barbara Broadcast as well. Um, and she's really good, but I thought she was quite effective because um, some of the other acting in this film from some of the victims, particularly the two sisters, is a little more dodgy, which may be a blessing in disguise. <laughs> but like, uh, but hers, I thought she was incredibly effective. That was, um, yeah, that was no fun. <laughs> and that's really, I think, how it should be. I mean, I think we talked about. Uh, solo, and we've talked about other films that are a little rough, uh, more mainstream fare. And I think that if it's too light and fun, then it, it's odd. If it is really rough, then you go, that's how people would be in reality. They wouldn't be happy, and they would be trying to get away, and they'd be crying and screaming. And yeah, it, it's not fun to watch, but it shouldn't be. No, this is not, you know, oh, the pizza boy arrived and, you know, oh, let's do this kind of stuff. This is, yeah, really rough. And just the way that it's shot, I mean, having her next to the toilet and everything and and just, you know, face down there. It's like, wow, this is really intense. And then just Gil is just unloading this diatribe against her and everything. And it just felt like so much pent up hatred of women overall, right? Rather than just her, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is really, it was not enjoyable at all, other than to say, wow, these guys are really good actors. But then at the same time, it's like, I don't know how much acting is going on with this. You know, it's like, really, is this what's really happening or not? And it made me question that reality, which I, I kind of enjoyed that it actually made me ask that question, is this real or is this not? And, and if you can do that in a, in a narrative film, it, I think it's rather effective. No, absolutely. Well, and, and Rob, I think you made an excellent point about, you know, the thing with a lot of roughies is that other people, and I know these films are definitely, yeah, as well as adult film in general, very protested uh, by a lot of feminists and, you know, in the 70s especially, but even now. But I think there's a misunderstanding because, like, it's almost like a pulp novels, you know, like from the old days where it's like there's a lot of, you know, there is a titillation to violence, but there's also just kind of a way of, I think, sort of culturally exercising of being like, like, okay, this is the reality of humanity's kind of darker side. Here it is. And, uh, and yeah, the acting, I mean, Jamie, I mean, holy, holy cow. He's so, he's so intense. I can't imagine any other actor doing that role, not just from the adult world, but in general. Like, he really is Bert in this film. 
The one thing that kind of strikes me as very odd in this film is that after we've seen Bert's kind of evolving or devolving into this, um, you know, new enema bandit and everything, that his girlfriend shows up. And it's like, what the heck is going on? It's kind of a nice uh, psych out with this scene where I would imagine that it's the cops that are showing up at his door. I don't know how they found out who he is, but, you know, it's like, okay, it it makes sense that he's done this horrible thing. So the cops are going to come and get him. And I think that's what he kind of thinks. He's hiding his his gear and everything and then it ends up that it's this woman who he has a relationship with and i'm like why why am i just seeing this now and you know obviously there's a lot of problems between the two of them and i I, at first i was kind of thrown off by it that it didn't ring true and then as the scene played out and as i watched this film a few more times it does ring a lot more true that he could have this relationship with this woman this completely fractured life that he can live this you know dual identity and that he has this woman here that really he can't communicate with at all you know the thing that struck me with that is kind of you know similar to like when you watch a true crime special about like somebody who turns out to be like a serial killer and then you find out they were they're married or they had a girlfriend who had no idea. Like these women are kept completely in the dark about sort of the uh, the other side of their partner, and so it's like, you know, the whole character of Barbara kind of made sense to me in, in that in that respect. Yeah. So we do see some of the investigation of Bert, and I don't <laughs> I don't even know where the cops would necessarily begin with this. Um, but it, it was it's interesting to see the interplay of the police and how they're kind of going about this. And really it seems more like the, the papers are on top of this than the police are because every time the cops are around, they're looking at the headlines describing another one of these cases. And it's like, okay, are the reporters beating you to this or not? But it, I guess it was much more of that just kind of crime film convention that, you know, the, the, the mayor or the chief of police or whoever is always pissed off when the paper breaks the story and they have they end up looking like they have egg on their face enema on their face oh i thought it was sort of like sad kind of sad and funny that you know uh, the main detective like his punishment basically is like we're going to give you a lady partner and you know we're going to give you irene murray which is cj lang it's like like initially it's like her saddling up to him is like his punishment for not solving the case within 24 hours <laughs> yeah yeah i wish somebody would punish me by sicking cj lang on me i just i don't you know what a horrible punishment <laughs> yeah i was uh I had just rewatched The Enforcer last night, so seeing, you know, the the attitudes about Tyne Daly joining the police force and getting saddled with Dirty Harry or vice versa, and it's just like, okay, it's it's funny that, you know, this well, that was 73, this is 76 and things sure hadn't changed too much for women in the police force and it's like, oh man, it's it, it's funny to go back and hear these kind of discussions and just be like, really? That's really how it was? Like, women really were, you know, just treated so badly? And yeah, sure enough, they were. So it's always it's disheartening, uh, but it's kind of a nice refresher when I hear just how much sexism was integrated into society, but it's nice now to think, wow, I would never hear that these days. Oh, definitely. No, things have changed immensely. I have to say, the main cop, her partner, is 
he doesn't fill me with a whole lot of confidence. I kind of appreciate uh, C.J. Lang as being much more uh, straightforward and seems to know what she wants and and goes for it, whereas her partner just seems to be like this kind of, I don't know, schmucky guy who um, doesn't really know how to go about things. And like he kind of just lucks into her having, having her as a partner. At least that's how I see it. And that's why I think with the ending – it's even so much more effective because when Gillis's character like eventually kind of gets lured in and, and all of this stuff and then does what he does to her, it's even more sort of dramatic because it's not like she's some wimpy little thing. You know, as you said, she was making she did have agency and to not only have agency but be a cop and to do that to a cop who has agency and it, it just uh yeah, it it makes the ending even more uh rough. I guess we get, what, four enemas in this film? We get the Gene Silver. We get the neighbor across the way. We get the twins, or the two girls that we'll talk about here, and then we get the cop at the end. Uh, I don't think that I'm forgetting any here, because they are all kind of the center points of the film. Um so, yeah, after we get the neighbor, Bert goes out again, kind of stalking uh, for victims, and he ends up running across these two girls who are sisters. I don't necessarily think that they're of age. Probably the actresses were, but it seems like the two uh, characters are not necessarily 18. It seems like they're still in high school. And that, to me, is the most porn moment of the film where we have the two sisters kind of um, flirting and talking about how they, they wanted their boyfriends over or the one wanted her boyfriend over, but no, mom and dad are away and oh, wouldn't this have been perfect? And it, that just seems like the most porn style in the film. So then when Gillis shows up, it just really turns on its head because we've gone from this kind of nice, uh, you know, these two girls having this kind of nice lesbian sex. All of a sudden, here's Bert and the fun just ends right there. Now, from my reading, that scene, not the actual scene itself, but that scene in terms of basis and reality, that's the one that may have come closest to to the original Enema Bandit, to Kenyon. Because right. according to what I read, his first one in 66 was two underage high school girls. And he held them both at gunpoint and did that. So I think that has its inspiration in reality. But as you said, it, it kind of leaps off a little bit into this ridiculous uh, porn world that we're kind of used to, which that's the one in tone that's a little bit out that if it was a little more serious, uh, I, I think across the board it would have been better. Well, it seems like Gillis definitely still is playing it very seriously. But at one point, the one of the sisters looks like she is just laughing and being really too happy <laughs> about what's going on. And it doesn't look like – I mean, when we've got some of the other scenes, it looks like the women that are, have, are in these scenes have done a little bit of self-cleaning beforehand. But it doesn't necessarily look like both of the sisters or one of the sisters has done their job because you get a lot of fecal matter in the bottom of this bathtub. Oh, yeah, that's a uh, yeah that that whole scene too is just it's not just like the the feces, but this is this 
which is a sentence I've always wanted to say on a podcast, by the way. But the weird, like, you've got this weird, almost like bongo music. And there's like, he's got like four enema bags hanging off that shower. And it's just, there's a lot of yelling. And it's like, it's like a, it's like a riot or something. It's like, it's just so chaotic and disorienting. And then you've got like, you know, the fluids flying and you're just like, oh my God. And (laughs) it's a, I mean, it's in a way, it's almost a blessing that maybe the acting, especially um, because one of those girls is Tuesday London, who's like the more willowy one. And she, she did a number of adult films. The other one uh, was that, that was like her only credit. And so I'm I'm thinking she was the goofy one that just kept, uh, kept grinning. And I love it when he's like, you know, you know, he's like on you, you know, like you, you lesbians. And she smiles. She's like, Oh, we're sisters. Like, like, that's okay. Then it's okay. Right. (laughs) As if he's going to be like, Oh, well in that case, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Go about your business. See, I actually thought it may have been a, um, they loaded the bag with something to make it, you know, seem a little more interesting i didn't take away that it was real uh in terms of the stuff that was coming out so well it seemed like i don't know one of them was just like oh all the poop or whatever <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> it looked like they got a surprise but maybe they they might have uh done that was there any sort of urination in this scene because i thought i had read that there were some golden showers going on in here too uh, it's in the extended cut. It's not in the Alpha France, but there is like a quick shot in the extended, the ultimate cut where you see Jamie clearly. Um, it's kind of murky looking, but he's he's definitely urinating. And I didn't think it was on this one. I thought it was the C.J. Lang scene after. Pretty. I thought he urinated on the two girls. I don't know. It's, I, I'm it, not granted, sure. Yeah, it's. I I didn't take that careful notes. I'm sorry. Damn it, Rob. Let's go ahead and take another break and play an interview with the director of Water Power, Sean Costello, and we'll play that after these important messages. Everyone wants to spice things up in the bedroom. Here's an offer you won't want to miss. Listeners of the Projection Booth podcast can enjoy 50% off just about any one item at adamandeve.com when you use the promotion code Booth. You also get free shipping and three free adult DVDs. Once again, that promotional code is Booth. That's B-O-O-T-H. Visit adamandeve.com today. You love midnight movies, don't you? (laughs) But can you handle midnight movies 24 hours a day? Your death will be indescribable. Find out on Black Flag TV. The first viral television on the web. Black Flag TV is entirely dedicated to haunting horror, science fiction, and cult movies. Broadcasting live, 24 hours a day, obscure independent movies and classic horror. Make Black Flag TV your sanctuary for the horror genre. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Visit us now. Blackflag.tv Life's complicated. That's why Dazed and Convicted has health and lifestyle tips to really help you with those day-to-day dilemmas. The only way to stop the itching and burning and sedate the empty feeling is to wear a butt plug for an hour. Plus relationship hints. You know, Rafe tells a gal all she needs to know about a guy. Recipe ideas. Place thumbs, anus, scrotum, and testes in the freezer. Information on local community services you may not know about. A lot lizard is quite simply a prostitute who works truck stops and rest stops. And health advice you can trust. Lesbian humping with a man in the room running a camera and adding his man splash to the festivities can, can help. 
prevent breast cancer. Health and Lifestyle on the Dazed and Convicted podcast at dazedandconvicted.com. We interrupt our program with a special bulletin. Okay, here we go. This is it. Greetings and salutations. Listen! Listen! I'm Josh Gravel. And I'm Scott Lefebvre. Oh, good for you! We want to let you know about the Arkham Film Society. We're a small group of cinephiles programming classic, horror, cult, and exploitation film events in the Providence, Rhode Island area. We have such sights to show you. We try to meet a need for unconventional programming by providing affordable film events through our monthly screening series. Be one of us. Find us on Facebook and join our group by searching for the Arkham Film Society at facebook.com slash Arkham Screening. Check out our blog at arkhamfilmsociety.blogspot.com. And stop by our Etsy and buy stuff at etsy.com slash people slash Arkham Screening. Yes, sir. you, sir. All right already. I'm hip. We now return control of your television set to you. Tell me, how did you get into the business? The business of porn? The business of porn or pretty much of making movies? I was a child of the balcony before I was ever making movies. So I had a, a, a sex addiction. I, I spent a great deal of time. I, I had uh, left a job. Uh, I got right out of school uh, editing a magazine. Um, I left the job just out of boredom. And out of further boredom with more time on my hands, uh, I... I found myself sitting in the balconies of sleazy movie theaters, uh, looking at naked women. And in those days, it was soft core porn, which was mostly, we're talking late 60s now. So we're talking volleyball games and nudist colonies. That gradually got better, but that's what I basically started watching. What magazine were you working for? Oh, it was a controlled circulation uh, publication called Career for the College Man which um, introduced college seniors to uh, corporate recruiters. And uh, I was the editor. I wrote the copy. I, I went to, I just sort of traveled around the country to campuses everywhere. I went to actually hundreds of campuses over two years, moderated radio programs at campus, uh, FM stations, tried to develop whatever kind of copy I could for the magazine, and then got recruiters together with college seniors. After two years, that's about as much as anybody could take of that. How did you decide kind of to go from the balcony to actually making the movies? You know, you had this thought at some point, you know, I'm watching these movies, and, and probably I had graduated from uh, volleyball games at, at Nudist Colonies to maybe softcore porn, where girls were sort of semi-naked and maybe once in a while kissed each other. That, that kind of movie, which, believe it or not, actually existed, and that's all that was shown. Um, and I wonder, I kept thinking to myself, how could I be in these movies? I mean, I, I love these movies. These are great. I sit in the balcony and they, they make me happy. Um, how could I be there in these movies? And so I just I did my homework. And, and um, I, there was a, uh, before Screw was published by Jim Buckley uh, in New York, there was a publication called The East Village Other. And there was and a lot of classifieds. Uh, were of a sexual nature of one kind or another, massage parlors, encounter groups, whatever. And and right there, I saw an ad that said, um, models wanted, nudity required. And so I made the call and um, was given an appointment. It turned out to be a guy named Ted Snyder, uh, who uh, I think became sort of infamous years later. And I believe in Los Angeles, was shot to death by his ex-wife on his front lawn. Oh, wow. Uh, but that, that I learned only in the, in the last decade. Um, but back then, Ted was a, was a guy who was um, owned a camera store at the borough of Queens and was taking um, 
soft core stills for masturbatory magazines to supplement his income. And I showed up one day and, and um, did a session with these two horrendous girls who were like totally quailed out. I don't, th- don't think that I was there. And uh, he paid me 25 bucks and I thought that was pretty good. It was 1968. And uh, I-, I thought this was good. And, and uh, I-, I thought it over. I- and he said he'd use me again. And I waited. I didn't call. And there was the ad again. And the ad, uh, but it was a different number. And uh, I called that number and it was busy, busy, busy. And finally got through. And it was a guy named Wolf. Ground floor uh, apartment studio, and uh, I went there and um, did a loop with uh, a lovely girl, and that was sort of the beginning of it. And I, I went back many times uh, to Wolf's studio. Oh, the the um, the sort of punchline, I guess, to my first day uh, being in a loop was that at, at the end of it, I had I had trouble. You weren't if a penis snuck its way into the frame, it was supposed to be soft. That was kind of the law of soft core in those days. And uh, this girl was just gorgeous, and I, I I just had an erection the whole time. And and um, he was flipping out. So he gave me a couple of sex breaks during which time I would have sex with the girl, and he would think that well, the erection would go away. It never did. For your two sex breaks, it's now uh, he's now giving me my third chance at pornographic fame, and um, I'm failing the test by still having an erection. And so, at the end of this whole thing, he's sort of shaking his head. He's thinking of me as half a horror show and half superhero. And um, <laughs> after which, he looks me in the eye and says, "Look, uh, I wonder if you'd mind like coming over to my house tonight and fucking my wife." <laughs> Now, now, years later, when I compared notes, he said the same thing to Jamie Gillis. He said the same thing to Harry Reams. We all fucked his wife. So it was, um, it was like the uh, fucking Mr. Wolf's Wife Club. And after that, you know, he called me. Uh, Ted Snyder called me. And then the name gets around. And it was a period when things were... You know, the courts were still not really allowing the interstate distribution of pornographic material for theatrical distribution. I mean, it just, you couldn't, you couldn't do that. Um, but you could almost do it. So people were trying all kinds of gimmicks uh, to justify having sex in a film. And, and so everybody was struggling in those days. Um, and my name got around and um, there was a, uh, a Jamaican, an illiterate Jamaican guy named Smitty. His name was Lloyd Smith. He was murdered by some mafia guy in 1978. They threw him out a window. God knows why. Uh, but anyway, he would show up and um, hire people to make loops. Myself, Harry uh, Reams, Jimmy Gillis, Fred Perna, who was later Fred Lincoln. Uh, we were pretty much it in New York in terms of male sex performers. He would hire us uh, and some girls, like three guys, three girls, and, and he would make four loops. He would pay everyone in cash. And I noticed that he was, he was really having trouble doing this, so I told him, uh, look, I'll hire everybody. I'll hire a cameraman. I'll get a location. You pay for it. I'll write the little scripts for the loops. I'll give them titles. Uh, I'll make the titles up. And all you have to do is show up and pay people. And he jumped at the chance. And so this is how I got started. I got started for about doing loops for Smitty. And I did it for about six months, maybe twice a month. We would get together and spend a day producing four loops. And I, to, to make them, you had to edit in the camera, which required doing a shot list. Uh, you had to know, you had to know that you had to shoot things in the order in which they would editorially appear, uh, which is not at all, of course, the way you normally make movies. And it's, it's kind of a difficult way to do it. And it takes a lot of time. But what happened was, um, as a result of doing this, 
I was able to develop a kind of formula that, that later I used when I was mass producing One Day Wonders. How did you kind of go from doing these loops? I mean, you pretty much doing everything other than directing, really, it sounds like. So how did you go from that to doing like full-length features, especially I'm looking at Fourth Century, where you did everything? Well, it was Fourth Century. It was, um, I was very friendly with uh, Stryker. Who was, who was later to become, uh, I think his, his name back then was Tim Long. And, uh, and there were three of us that were friendly. One was a, a guy named Jimmy, who was a, uh, a friend of mine from high school, um, who was, you know, he, was, he had a bad marriage and he was bored. And, um, and the three of us sort of kicked around the idea. They knew, those two knew that, knew that I wanted to make a feature, but I, I needed to make something that was fail-safe. I needed to make something that I knew would not lose any money, and I needed to make something that could be made very, very cheaply. So, so I, I, I was thinking of making like a splatter horror thing, um, but that's very risky. Then I thought of porn, and porn was very risky because in those days, uh, as I said, legally justifying having sex in a film was a very hippie proposition, and it had to be done very carefully. So I came up with the idea that it, that using the Vietnam War, which no one had done, uh, I was the first one to really do that as a central theme for a film. And a, a guy um, has bad dreams. He comes back from Vietnam. He's out of his mind. And um, in his twisted psyche, he begins to have the need to uh, continue killing. And um, he goes on a rape and murder spree. Now, because he rapes, there's sex. And so there's the justification. And so I thought I was on safe footing because he killed the, the women that he um, had sex with. Uh, it was also kind of a splatter movie. So I was safe in that direction. Uh, the problem was that it became a little bit of both or a little bit of each. And uh, when it came time to actually find a distributor for it, it, it was people were, were kind of they liked it. It had a gritty feel to it, but they didn't know what to do with it. So I wound up, it took me a long time to edit it because I had no idea about post-production at all. And, and I was in the middle of another um, film, which was a documentary I, I made with a guy named Bill Marco called Loops. And I was in the middle of doing that. I wasn't really finishing for a century. And I learned enough doing Loops from Bill Marco to become a competent film editor. So I was able to take those skills and go back and finish for a century. Um, we screened it for a guy named Jerry Entretor, uh, who bought it outright. Uh, he added a little footage of Harry Reams walking around in streets to, because the, the um, distributor uh, was Surpix, which was Sam Lake. Sam didn't know what to make of it. He liked it, but he wanted it because it might be like a splatter movie. Uh, he needed more, more length. And so I think it wound up being about almost 90 minutes long. Um, in the final cut, the footage that uh, Jerry Entretor added. And then it um, it opened and played and did low to medium box office. But it made enough noise so that my name was around. And I was now involved with another another production. That was the time of, of, of porn chic, of Jackie Onassis uh, being seen coming out of the theater, uh, having seen Deep Throat. And, and um, porn was a very big deal. So we were able to lure with a docu-comedy that was footage uh, of me making loops for Smitty with uh, Harry Reams and I forget who the a girl named Lucy Grunther, who later became Lucy Grantham, and several other people whose names I've forgotten. And we, we intercut that with some scripted footage of me as a filmmaker uh, making a porno on the side of my wife finds out. And we, somehow we resolved that. 
stupid story, but it, it, it at least gave us a story. So we were able to screen it for everybody. We screened it for Warners, for Afco Embassy, for uh, UA, for just about everybody, all the majors. And uh, we came very, very close with Warner Brothers. They had three screenings. And finally, in the end, they thought that the, the picture was just too risky for their brand. There was no hardcore footage in it, but there was enough nudity and, and, um, and blatant language uh, that they just thought it was too much for them. But we came close. So I made two movies from scratch, and neither one lost any money, which is, I think, very rare in the film business. What was the name of that second one? The second was a, was a movie called Loops, and it was sold uh, finally to Sean Cunningham, who made Friday the 13th. He started weeping. We screened it at the, at the uh, movie lab uh, screening room up in the West 50s. Sean Cunningham started crying. He thought it was because my name is Sean, and I'm in the movie, and I play the lead in it, and the lead character's name is Sean. He thought it was the story of his life, and um, I don't know whether it was or not, but anyway, he bought it. And uh, it was not for a great deal of money, but it was for way more than it cost to make it, which was pretty cheap. And and uh, so we pocketed the money, myself and Bill Markle, and um, started looking for other things to do. And that was sort of the beginning of making features. I was curious about the, the name that you used in Force Entry, Helmuth Rick, Rickler. Where did that one come from? I dated a German girl for a while whose name was Ingeborg Rischler. God knows why I used that name. She had a brother named Helmut. It seemed to me, I don't know, the movie seemed violent. Um, I stuck a German name on it. I thought the only people that would go for something like this would be a German audience that are sort of into rough sex. So I gave it a, a, a German director. What were some of your other favorites that you used? Your favorite nom de porns? I, I used so many. You know, it... it uh, I used, here's what I did. I, I made movies for a lot of different people. Each group, there were two Greeks who were really funny guys, Teddy Karyathilis and Tom, Tom Chulos, who owned uh, a movie theater called the Capri Cinema on 8th Avenue in Manhattan, an enormous cash cow. Uh, you didn't have to advertise movies. You changed the bill every other week, and the place was packed all the time. So it was a, it was a great place to make movies for uh, because you knew they were going to make money. Uh, and so I, I had a couple of different names I think I used for Teddy and Tom. And then I was making movies at the same time I was making One Day Wonders for a company called Star Distributors downtown uh, on Lower Broadway. And Star Distributors was the porno arm of the of first the Gambino, of the DiCavalcante, and after that the Gambino crime family. I, I learned that gradually as I began working for them. And so I was making One Day Wonders for them, uh, mass producing them. I had kind of a, a, a factory that was mass producing these things. Uh, and I was making money movies for the Greeks and I was making movies for a guy named Cal Young. And each for each group, I had a different name to the point where Teddy Cariopoulos one day said to me, oh, son, son, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Wisconsin, you know him? And of course, that was my name for a guy named Cal Young who I was making movies for. No, I don't. I said, Teddy, I, I, and he's, like, he's making movies, but I, I've never met him. Oh, his movies make big money. Oh, really? So it was like that. Teddy had no idea that I was Russ Carlson. The guys downtown had no idea that I was Amanda Barton. You know, it was it was like that. It was kind of a game. It was it was it was. Uh, I was playing with risk and having a good time doing it. How did you even do it? How did you have the energy to be doing all of these things and just so much of it? Well, Chris, I certainly couldn't do it now. Uh, but I was very young. You know, I was young. I had energy, and I dealing with risk. This has kind of been a lifetime thing with me. I mean, it was, it was, uh, 
Later on, when I was even more active, um, making a pornographic movie, same time uh, working for CBS Sports, um, I would do things, I would do insane things, like we'd open, I had an aluminum Halliburton briefcase, uh, and we'd be in the boardroom, sort of like discussing, uh, this is like 1973, 74, discussing uh, the possibility of putting together a match play between Johnny Miller and Jack Nicholas, and how could we make this happen, what would the prize money be, um, how would we cover it? And meantime, I'm taking sleeves of chromes, trans- 35 millimeter transparencies, which are in, in transparent uh, plastic sleeves, which is how you store them. And I'm you know, holding them up to the fluorescent lights in the boardroom at CBS Sports, looking at hardcore pornographic pictures, while these other guys are talking about golf. You know, just, just pushing it as far as I could push it. Those kinds, of, those kinds of things thrilled me. It was sort of why I did it, you know, trying to almost get caught and then getting away with it. It was a major thrill. Which came first, uh, Dominatrix Without Mercy or Water Power? Water Power. Can you tell me how did that one kind of come about? It was, uh, I had just moved to upstate uh, New York uh, to a little town about 90 minutes north of the city. And we were up there unpacking, and the phone rang. And it was Sid Levine, who was one of the front men for Star Distributors. Sid was very anxious and said he needed to talk to me right away. Couldn't wait. So I said, Sid, I, you know, I'm just unpacking. We just moved up here. You know, we've got dogs running all over the place. We've got horses to move into a barn. It's like a big deal. No, no, you have to, you have to come down here right away, right now. I need to see you right now. So I'm thinking, you know, Sid was a good guy. He was an older sort of grandfatherly type guy who I used to tease mercilessly. And but I liked a lot. And so I got in the car and I drove down to the city. And I, and I Sid's waiting at his office. It's about seven o'clock at night. He never stays there that late. I mean, this is this was a big deal. And so he looks across the desk at me and says, "I'm a grandfather, and I'm ashamed to ask you what I'm about to ask you. They need an enema movie." And I'm thinking he's joking. I'm on candid camera. You know, somebody's going to come out from behind a curtain. This is not really happening to me. But it was. And and Sid then played a tape. He showed me a magazine article about a guy, true story of a guy um, in Illinois who became known as the Enema Bandit and forcibly gave enemas to college co-eds on the University of Illinois, I think, Urbana campus. Um, and after a couple of years of terrorizing, but n- not raping, not not touching anyone sexually, but just <laughs> forcibly tying them up and giving them enemas, um, they caught it. And there's nothing, there's no law that says you can't give someone an enema. So they, they charged him with assault and sent him to prison. So Sid looks at me and says, look, you can't tell anybody this, but this came from the top. D.B. wants us to make this movie. Kiki was the nickname for a man named Robert DiBernardo. Robert DiBernardo was the capo in the Gambino family who was in charge of all of their pornographic interests. It was D.B. who uh, was the muscle behind Ruben Sturman in Cleveland, who, who sort of backed Sturman to the point where Sturman became the sole owner of every peep show machine on earth with a German partner and was able to get into everyone's territory because he all he would say was, if you object to this, I'm going to have to get on the phone with D.B. Now, D.B. was not a violent man, and I, I know of no instance when he ever harmed anyone, but just mentioning his name uh, was enough. And so this was a big, powerful guy, and he wanted this movie made. Sid played me a tape 
of a, a, a tape recording of a dramatized, I, somebody must listen to this and jerk up, I guess, of a dramatized enema. Uh, and I used that tape for basically to script the scene where um, Rob Everett and Marlene Willoughby give an enema to Gene uh, Silver. Uh, and... Um, but I I um, I walk out of the office out of, out of Sid's office thinking this is insane, and I'm, I'm walking down the hall and the elevator door opens and out comes DB. There he is, and DB says to me, "Did you talk to Sid?" Um, yeah, I did. Uh, okay, now you're, you're cool about this. This is good. We're gonna do this. Uh, I said, "Yeah, all right. You deal with Sid. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to see it. I don't want anything to do with it. You deal with Sid. Do what he says. Okay? Sure." And that was it. So I'm making a movie for a man who never ever wants to see it and wants nothing to do with it, which is what I did. The more I thought about making a movie about this guy who gives girls animus, the more I thought it was just hilarious. And I did something very risky. I basically created a movie that was a parody of itself. And, and you know, most people that see something like Water Power don't understand it at all. About a third of the people I think that have written about it get it. They understand that this is this is done this is comedy. This is not to be taken seriously. And and so I thought I, I thought it over, hired my favorite actors, Jamie and Rob Everett, Marlene Willoughby and whoever else, and um and created a movie that was a parody of itself. I knew that the guys went um, issues. I felt like it was it was okay. I could get away with this. Uh, I went to the lab after the movie had been uh, edited and finished to view the release print the, rather the answer print, which I always did. I sat with the with the timer. I would go over all the numbers, and then uh, the next day I would go over and would screen the answer print. So Sid Levine calls while I'm, I'm in the screening room, and he says, "Look, I, I don't want to see this thing. I don't want to see it. DB doesn't want to see it." And so I, I mentioned other people down there uh, uh, whose name names I know. No, they don't want to see it either. This is really embarrassing for us. How is it? Is it good? And I said, well, it's exactly what you asked for. Oh, okay. Well, that's good then. Yes, I think it's good. It's what you asked for. That's what I did. That's what I'm looking at. So the release print order, which is those prints that are shipped out to theaters, was made without anybody at Star Distributors ever seeing that film. Absolutely outrageous. They were so enemophobic that they couldn't deal with it. They thought that someone would, with someone, with some, you know, one of the wise guys on the street would point fingers at them. Oh, there goes the enema guys. And they didn't want that stigma attached to them. These mafioso guys are very, very strange sexually. And, and yet it was these guys that produced so many of these films. So that's basically the story of Water Power, the film that was never seen by the people who made it. So why you? Why do you think they chose you to make this film? No idea. Uh, yes, there is an idea. There's a reason why I knew DB. There's a reason why I was trusted. And that's because in 19, oh God, 1973, I made 32 feature films in four months for star distributors. 32 feature films, 32 feature trailers, uh, complete with uh, narration, titles, whatever, all complete delivered. 32 in four months. No one had ever delivered that volume of smut before. And I go back to what I was saying earlier about the, um, the formula. I had worked out a formula to do this and it fascinated me. How could I, how could I sort of create a way to mass produce films um, these kinds of films 
And so I created a sort of a prototype for uh, the One Day Wonder. I'm not the first one that made them. Roberta Finley uh, certainly made them before I did. Um, and um, there were some other people as well. A guy named Kaufman um, was making them. Uh, there were several people who did. But I was the first one that sort of created a, a method for making them, which was copied a million times over by everybody else forever after. And this became the way you made sex films. And so um, uh, because I was able to, in their world, in the world of these, these underworld people, these mafioso, in their world, somebody who delivers what he promises on time and on budget every single time is a rarity. And that's what I did. I was very responsible and very concerned with never going over budget and very concerned with delivering product on time. And so after a few years, they trusted me. They trusted me to the point where I would go down for a meeting with Sid and each would come in to say hello uh, and others down there would come in to say hello. I was treated differently. I was the only one that ever met DB in the entire um, X-Stone industry. That's why. That's that's why I think they asked me to do this. I was the, If they had something really insane to do and they were really worried about it, they would have somebody they, that they trusted uh, do this. And so they asked me to do it and I did it. So you're kind of like the Henry Ford of porn. I was, that's what they called me. I used to, um, uh, when I would arrive down there, there, there would be guys, you know, like white guys that would be in t-shirts carrying film cans up staircases from one floor to the other. And that's how they greeted me. Hey, it's Henry Ford. How are you, Henry? And uh, so that's that's actually true. I was curious about the the music in the film. Was it pretty standard practice to kind of reuse other music? scores? Yeah. Uh, no, it was not. It was not. Just everybody was scared. Everyone said, "You are out of your mind. ASCAP is going to come after you. You're <laughs> going to sue you. They're going to arrest you." Never happened. I stole music. I stole music for the entire time I was in the X film business. Um, and to, to everybody, I think people that know my films know the scores. They know the movies they came from. Um, I used uh, Bernard Herrmann. I used uh, a lot of really wonderful, lush music. And it was a pleasure to cut picture to it. it. It made me feel good and it made the movie much better. I never got in trouble. It was great to hear it and it kind of recontextualized with Water Power. Most of the music for Water Power, including the main title theme, was uh, Bernard Herrmann's score for Sisters, one of Brian De Palma's early films. Great score, by the way. Seems like there's a lot of different cuts for water power. Do you know why that is? Yeah, I do. In 1983, 84, I was working in Cleveland, and I went to a, uh, not being able to stay away from slaves very long, I went into a, a bookstore, and looking around, they had put bins for, um, you know, then, of course, porn was on VHS cassettes. And they had bins, you know, the $5 bin, the $10 bin. And I'm looking, and I pick up this strange VHS cassette. And the title is Schwitz. And I look at it, and it's the German version of Water Power. I couldn't believe it. I turned it over and looked at the stills. It was Water Power. What had happened was that the movie never made any money. I mean, I was certainly not surprised. Theater owners were absolutely terrified by this movie. I mean, it really showed people getting enemas. Who, in their right mind, would sit in a balcony and masturbate to something like that? So it's, it's, this is a really insane movie. Uh, for some reason, he thought something like this would make money. It was, in America, a complete flop. 
so it, it went through its first distribution cycle uh, and died. Uh, by this point, I was really not making that many films for the guys at Star anymore. I was working for the Greeks uptown and several other people and just beginning to work for Ruben Sturman. They thought that if they re-released it, added footage from the outtakes, and put Jerry Damiano's name on it, it would make money. This is how stupid these guys are. If it's not going to make money, it's not going to make money. Putting somebody else's name on it is not going to create box office. But they didn't, they didn't think that way. So um, D.D. called somebody in the Colombo family. The Colombo family wholly owned Jerry Damiano. And basically bought his name. So Jerry allowed his name to be put, not that he had any choice, uh, on Water Power. It was released with his name on it and I think a slightly uh, altered title sequence and additional footage, about 10 minutes uh, extra footage from the outtakes, which made it almost unwatchable. It was boring and it's an original 71-minute version that's 86 minutes. It's just you know, way too much anima for any human being to take. Hickman, of course, died. And so D.B. didn't know what to do with this. So D.B., being very close to Ruben Sperman, is having a conversation one day and, 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 and says to Ruben, look, I've got, this, I've got this really quirky movie. You want to take this off my hands? What is it? Enema movie. Oh, God. Uh, well, maybe. Maybe. So Ruben, a very smart guy, takes the movie and ships it to Germany to his partners there. It's open. It opens in Germany to huge box office. It not only is a porn movie, it's an oddity. It has sh- midnight champagne screenings in art houses is how Water Power opened in Germany and in the Netherlands. And it made a ton of money. It was very smart. The Germans and the Dutch are so quick that, you know, I guess shit is fun to them. Um, but it was not to American audiences. So that's that's basically what they did it and how the movie fi- finally wound up making money and how Jerry Damiano's name wound up on it. Over the years, because it played in America in one version, and it played in America in two versions, one originally done by me, a second done by, done allegedly by Jerry Damiano, and then all of a sudden all these other versions for different European countries, each one had a separate edit, that that when the prints began over, over a period of time disappearing, which is what happens to these things, uh, they go into vaults or they go into landfills. God only knows. They disappear. People start piecing them together. And uh, there are many different versions of this film. I think that the, probably the best quality version was the Alpha France uh, version that, um, what's his name, Mishkin did uh, in Paris. And that was a print that was found in Switzerland. Mishkin, I contacted him in Paris because I wanted to know who did the edit. Because it was edited at random to shorten it for length by what looked like a non-English speaking or a guy who edited this film spoke very little of any English. So he would just start editing, chopping up dialogue sequences so that it made no sense anymore. Mishkin claims that he did not edit it. He didn't shorten it. It was the print was that way when he found it. Um, and they did shorten it for length in Switzerland. And, but what was left over was very high quality picture um, as a source, you know, for making a for digitizing it. So uh, it, it's a lovely version, um, but it's very choppy and it's very short. Um, there is a version that's being done uh, in Germany and Switzerland now, and I'm involved in it. I have seen some of the scans. And the quality is extremely good. It's as good as the Alpha France version. The difference will be that, that we're going to conform it as close as we possibly can to my original edit. So I think for the first time in, in 35 years, um, 
people who would be interested in seeing this film can see it the way it was meant to be seen. Do you have like your shot list or are you kind of editing from memory? How, how's that going? I, I have an extraordinary uh, memory for detail. But I have to tell you, I've, I've seen so many shots that people have found. Guys in England, guys in the Netherlands, guys in Germany, guys in Japan that have contacted me that have said, that, you know, I found this shot, I found that shot, and they would send it to me. And, it, you know, and I would, I would remember it when I saw it. Uh, but it was stuff that I had long forgotten. So uh, now I've seen so much of it that I, it's almost like I made it last year. One of the things that just astounds me is the cast of Water Power and just pretty much your cast overall. I mean, you worked with so many amazing actors. Who were some of your favorites to work with? I, you know, I think anybody who wants to know who my favorite actors were should just look at my movies. I used the same people over and over again. Jamie was in almost every movie I made. Rob Everett was in many, many of them. Harry Reams was only in a few very early ones because Harry, because Herb Stryker became Harry Reams and was a famous guy and doing, doing the talk show circuit. So he had sort of left corn in the East Coast and was living in California and in another world. But certainly uh, Jamie and, and Rob Everett and, and some others were just, you know, I used them over and over and over again because I could trust them. Because I knew they could act. I knew that they could, you know, they could act on a certain level. They had no professional training. Jamie didn't. Um, and he tended to overact. But, but if you gave Jamie a script, he would try his best, which is more than I could say for a lot of others. He would really try to get into it and try to do, you know, what you were asking him to do. So I loved working with him. And also, when it was very late at night, as it often was, working 18-hour days, day in and day out, when it was like 9 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, and you had been on the set for 16 or 17 hours, all of a sudden, Jamie would begin to sing. And, and that was really necessary for the crew. The crew loved it. He would sing, or he would tell great stories, and... and um and he would energize the entire room. So he was just a wonderful guy to have around. What was it like working with Marlene Willoughby? Yeah, uh, heaven on Earth. You may want to read the book. I, last year, I wrote, I wrote uh, when Harry Reams died, I was very, very um, affected by it. Uh, we had been very close friends years ago. And, and um, he, he, you know, he died at the age of 65. And, and um, anyway, I wrote a book about him that nobody bought, but it's actually quite good. And it's something you should read if you want to know about Marlene Willoughby, because one night when doing acid, Herb and I wound up in Marlene Willoughby's apartment. This is long before she was in porn. She was just living down in the East Village with her sister and her mother, who was a seamstress. And she was a Polish girl from Detroit who had just arrived in the city. And we wound up there on acid. And it's a very funny story. Uh, Marlene was, I could do this with Marlene. I, what you have to do is think of, think of frames, think of film frames, like water power. The scene with, where Rob Everett plays the doctor and Marlene plays the nurse. Just look at her outfit. She's got a, she's got a stethoscope. All the black rubber is pink. She's got a pink stethoscope, pink instruments. She's got, you know, an outfit that's almost psychedelic. But it's only noticeable if you really look carefully, because it is a stethoscope, and it's, most people don't notice that it's pink. But Marlene provided that, because I said to Marlene, you know, just called her on the phone and said, Marlenka, I need you Tuesday, and I need you as a nurse. And she would go to work. She, she sewed all her own costumes. She would go to work, and she would show up as a ridiculous nurse on Tuesday. And that's how that scene was done. And I worked with Marlene endlessly. I can remember, you know, I had met her years before she was ever really in porn. And then she showed up one day for a casting call saying, surprise, surprise. And, and, um, and I was just delighted to see her. She was, she was wonderful to work with. She was genuinely funny. 
She kept everyone laughing. I never heard an ill word out of her about anyone, which is the same thing about, I could say, about Vanessa Del Rio, um, who was a wonderful, wonderful girl. They just were very positive forces on a set. And, and my policy in those days, I think the most important thing for me was running a happy set. There weren't, you know, I had no problems. There were, you, you speak to other people that tell you, oh, these guys couldn't get it up and all this stuff was happening. It never happened with me because I always tried to make everyone comfortable. I tried to provide an atmosphere that was conducive to everyone's comfort and amusement. I tried to give feed everyone really well, pay everybody with the, what, you know, what the budget would, would yield. And be good to everyone. And we had fun. We were like a family. That's the way we worked. And so if you look at my movies, you'll see over and over again, Marlene Willoughby and Vanessa Del Rio in movie after movie after movie, because they were my favorites. They would do wonderful things for me and, and um, they were dependable and I loved them. Later on, and in, in, in much later on, I was working for Ruben Sturman, the same is true of Jane Hamilton, who was, um, I forget what name she used, Veronica Hart. And I just loved Jane. Jane was wonderful to work with. She was lots of fun and she was very funny. And um, had she been around back in the 70s, I would have used her every time, too. From what I can tell, it looks like 83 might have been your last gig as a director. Is that right? True. Most of 83 is when I I, uh, made my exit. Uh, What prompted that? Um, Just I was burned out. I had just made too many of these things. I don't know how many. I, I believe... I think the number of titles that IMDb has for me is 65 titles. I think I really did over 100. And the reason I was able to do that many is all those one-day wonders I made for Star. Those things, those titles disappeared. I don't, I don't remember them. And those are the kind of films that were shown, that were screened in so many different theaters, in so many different chopped up into so many different edits, which is what theater owners would do in those days. They would open a, they would open a film and they would show it for a week and they would call another theater owner in another state and say, I've got this, I want to send you this. And, 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 and if the guy said, oh, I, I've seen that one, they would, they would then say, oh, how about this other one? And make up a title of a movie that didn't exist. Oh, I, I, I didn't show that one. Send me that one. And so they would, they would photograph the title, put it on, that, on the front of the film that the guy has already shown in his theater in another state, and ship it to them. And they didn't know the difference. So this happened so many times with these cheap one-day wonder movies that, that um, they wound up disappearing. Would they take one movie and kind of slap a new title on it and say this yes, is a different that, film? Oh, sure. They, they didn't do that with major films. They did it with one-day wonders, though, because there was so much product. There were so many theaters that were making so much money, and there was some product everywhere um, that everybody got greedy. And, you know, the theater owners were all crooks and they, they would do exactly that. Put a new title on, on an old movie and ship it to the next guy. So even though you weren't directing, you kind of stuck with the business. You did, um, you were producing a lot of stuff, right? In, in Rapture I, I and Popcorn. I don't believe I ever produced anything. I, no, I, I, I have no connection to Popcorn. I have no idea what that even is. To get the international movie database thing to change any of this is like is like having root canal without you know without painkillers. You know they they just won't do it. I mean they they just they're so set in their ways and and they'll say and they'll say well you're going to have to give me reasons why this should be happening because I'm the one that made the fucking movie. You know I I'm the person and I'm telling you I was you know I wasn't in this I wasn't in that. Anyway so so I was not in popcorn I didn't produce popcorn. 
Um, and the other movie, Rapture or something, I wasn't in that either. I don't even know what that is. Also, I, people think that I'm Ken Schwartz. Uh, Ken Schwartz was an actual person, a human being who um, owned a film editing facility with, I think, 16 back cables. He was a, an affable sort of grandfatherly guy who I actually put in a couple of movies. But for some reason, because our names crossed and I used so many names, they simply assume that the name um, Schwartz was some nom de porn that I was using. And it's something I have not been able to shake. What did you do after you retired from porn then? Um, I, I was in uh, Cleveland. I, was, I started making the rounds through advertising agencies, doing uh, local commercials, um, then doing better commercials and um, started getting restless. And uh, somebody, an art director, I think at a local, um, I think it was a wise advertising in, in Cleveland, said, you know, you've done what you can do in this town. Because I was running around, you know, running around Cleveland with with a um, with a Panavision camera. I was unique. I was like the guy from New York. But there's only so far you can go doing that. And so he gave me the name somebody in Minneapolis. And what I didn't know at the time is that Minneapolis was the third biggest film producing uh, community in America, bigger than Chicago. And the advertising and agencies in Minneapolis were red hot and winning all the Clios. And so this was the place to go if you wanted to to create um, a reel for yourself to bring back to New York to get work. And so I went to Minneapolis uh, and was there for two years and put together a comedy reel um, that I was able to bring back to New York, I think in night around 1986 or so. And... Um, Made the rounds and signed with a couple of different directors groups and started making commercials in New York. You must just kind of fit right in with the advertising world, which I know is fairly hectic. Just be able to kind you of know, knock these things because out. Because I have no attention span. It was perfect. It was great. There's a um, you have a company and there are a bunch of names. They're usually the names of the directors, but on the on the shingle. And um, the company has, say, uh, they've got a comedy guy, they've got a tabletop guy, they've got a a condensation guy, which is like a a, a vapor dripping down uh, beer bottles. That's that's an art form. Um, They've got a kid guy, they've got a toy guy, they've got a fashion guy, and then they've got two reps that go around with everybody's reels and bring in storyboards. And so a storyboard will come in for a particular director to bid on. And uh, you then go out uh, with the producer, you come up with ideas, you look at the board, you say, this is how I'll do this. And you go to uh, the agency and you stand up in the boardroom uh, in front of a bunch of suits and play your case. This is how I'm going to do this. Your, your, your board is great. I love it. But I think I can make it better. And here's how. And so the impassioned plea, which I was very good at, would very often get me the job. Also, you would get the storyboard, bid on the storyboard, get the job, shoot the job, and never see it again. And the whole thing took about a week or two. And you'd never see that, that, that product again. You'd never see those people again. And there was a new board to bid on, new casting to do. And I just loved that. I loved, I loved how quickly it began and how quickly it was over. You know, I just, there was no long term. I was so used to working on features where you'd be working on news for six months. And um, this is a week and it was over and I didn't have to worry about it. And they would pay me a lot of money. And so it was, uh, it was, it was just perfect for my personality. I was not a top director. I was not a top money maker, but I made, I made a fair amount of money and did a fair amount of work. So when did you decide to start blogging? 
Oh, blogging. Um, about four years ago, I think I discovered a blog on uh, WordPress, and I think I took a look at some other people's blogs, and I thought the idea of taking, I have a ton of material from writing my own memoir and writing uh, a book, of uh, two memoirs, actually, one about the 70s and then one also about childhood. So I have all these stories that I was able to sort of glean from, from these manuscripts. They existed already, and I, I, I like the idea of adding artwork to them, adding photographs, uh, creating uh, something that was, that was interesting to look at and to, and to read. So I started doing it, and I really loved it. And now it's, it's, it's an extremely active blog. I have a lot of followers. Nobody's paying me yet, which is kind of annoying, but I have a lot of followers. I get a lot of traffic, and people seem to like it. Every once in a while, you know, I get a, a, a neocon or something that, that can't stand what I'm doing. Uh, I got two interesting um, – did you read the Dick Cheney piece? Yes. I got two emails from Dick Cheney. Really? They, um, oh, yeah. They, 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 a lot of the political stuff, the Dick Cheney thing, the, the um, SpongeBob uh, SquarePants thing, when they would come out, I would make sure they got around to as many as many people as, as possible. Those political parody pieces were all referenced by Jon Stewart, by Stephen Colbert, by Rachel Maddow, Chris Matthews. Newt Gingrich was grilled constantly during the two years ago during the primaries. After I released the piece, that he, you know, because it dawned on me that you know, Newt does look like SpongeBob SquarePants. And so I did this phony interview session where uh, reporters were asking Newt about SpongeBob, and Newt goes crazy and ballistic and and uh, yells at the ball. And so Newt didn't like that. <laughs> and the more he didn't like it, the more reporters during the campaign would ask him questions about, you know, well, is there a reason why you don't think you look like SpongeBob? So I finally, I get a, after the, the Cheney piece had been out for about a month. I got a hate mail from Dick Cheney basically saying that, you know, a wet op squad was going to be sent to my house to uh, skin me alive. And um, and then a week later, I got another email from him. And it was and he and basically he said, I have to tell you that my wife read the thing and she said, Dick, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. He's got you pegged. And um, and he read it again. And she was right. It is pretty funny. So he takes it all back and he's not going to have me skin the water. Which I thought was really was OK. I'm going to hate Dick Cheney, but. I thought it was pretty cool of them to actually contact me and say that. So the blog has been fun. It's a lot of fun to do. You mentioned Wild About Harry before. What was kind of the impetus? What made you say, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write this book about Harry Reams? Because, you know, because he died, because he was my good friend, because I know things about him that no one else knows. Uh, and because if I don't write it, that will never be recorded. People will never read those things. It will be, he will always be known almost exclusively for Deep Throat. And I think there, there, I think that he was a complicated guy, a wonderful guy, and there are things about him that needed to be said. And so um, I called Thomas Eichram in London, who was a good friend of mine, and he publishes film rights. And uh, and I said to Thomas, to save me space in the next issue. I really want to do a piece about Harry Reams. I think, I think you know, I, I, I've got, I feel strongly about this. I really want to do a piece about him. And so Thomas said, this is all Thomas's idea. Thomas said, no, let's do it as a standalone book. We'll get, we'll all participate and get stills, you know, in which we, which we did. Um, very rare scans from different films that he made as that had not been seen in 30 years. And I went to work on the copy. I wrote it in three weeks, basically 24 hours a day. I was just writing and writing and writing. And the more I wrote it, the more I liked it. The acid trip alone, I think, is probably about 15 pages. 
is, is, is worth the read. And I was very happy about that because it was something I remembered in incredible detail. And um, I was very happy to record it, to put it down, to write, actually write this so that my, my brain cells don't you know completely fall apart and I would forget it. So it's, re- it's recorded pretty much the way it happened, and I'm very happy about that. So, so I wrote the book. It, 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 the, the, the hardcover version is way too expensive for anyone to buy. I basically hated it. I had some pictures, some guys in Denmark had pictures. Thomas had some pictures. Uh, Robin Boogie, I'm sure you know him, had pictures. We all contributed to this. Stephen Morowitz um, had some pictures. But, it, but the pictures didn't support the text, and Thomas threw it together pretty much the way he does film rage. And so I did the book. I redid the book file, getting rid of a lot of the superfluous stuff and adding pictures that I thought were important, like really greedy black and white Times Square, 42nd Street, 60s, 70s stuff. Greedy, nasty stuff. Also pictures of Harry Reams' promo tour for Inside Deep Throat, pictures of him in Utah, pictures of people he talks about in interviews. I got it to the point where I finally felt that the pictures now support the text. And so I'm happy with it. And it, it's it's finished. I've done it. And it's going off to Kindle and to all the other electronic menus uh, next week. Oh, awesome. Well, hey, thank you. I went over my half hour by quite a bit here. I know. I know. But it was, you know, you get me yakking and, and, I, and I, it's hard to stop. But I hope you got what you needed. I, I think it's good to talk to, to Gene. There's, there's no one else that you can really talk to. There are some other people that are around, but they're not really. Um, the only other person is Sharon Mitchell. Who, well, she was the source of Gene, you know. She was, oh, yeah, she was on the set. And the girl who was supposed to play, the girl who's, you know, is on the gurney. So I'm pacing back and forth thinking, what the fuck am I going to do now? And Sharon was there. And Sharon said, well, you know, there's this girl who's staying with me in my apartment. She's never done anything like this, but I bet she'd do it. But there's there's one thing you have to know. Uh, she only has one leg. Well, you know, I really <laughs> I didn't know how to react to that. I, I didn't care. Um, if you if you have seen the film, you know that that, of course, is not shown. The guys downtown would have had would have gone into cardiac arrest if they saw a person with one leg in one of their films. Uh, and they didn't see it anyway, but, you know, eventually they would have. Um, and I never showed it. Uh, and uh, she and she showed up. That, of course, is not her name either. Uh, 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 but this girl showed up. She was quite young, which was a little scary. Uh, and um, but she showed up and she did her thing. And it was it was terrific. And, and uh, at the end of the it was a loft down on 19th Street, West 19th Street. And and we're, we're disassembling the set, which is in front of the loft right by the elevator. And hand in hand, the elevator door opens, and into the elevator, hand in hand, walk Jamie and the girl who became Jean Silver. And Jamie turns around over his shoulder and says, into the night. And the elevator door closed. And we all just looked at each other thinking, good God, I wonder what they're going to do. And of course, I heard about it the next day, because Jamie called me. But um, anyway, that's enough.
back, and thanks to Mr. Costello for taking the time, and we're talking about water power. Now, he talked a bit about the various versions of the film that are out there, and thankfully, someone took the time to put together this kind of composite version that is available, I guess, via the Undernet. I, I guess that's kind of not the internet. I mean, not everybody can get a hold of this, but I guess some people can, and we did. So, Mike and Heather, did you both get a chance to see this extended version of the film? And uh, what did you think? I definitely got a chance to see it, and I, I'm i always fascinated by cuts like this. You know, when we watched Deep Red, it was fascinating to me to, um, you know, when, when the actors would suddenly switch to German or back to Italian or whatever, and we would go away from the... Um, the the main version of the film into this kind of other version of it and so with this one we get kind of a drop in quality and then you get dutch subtitles along the way too and it was very fascinating to me to see exactly where these cuts were and then i went back and i rewatched the alpha france version and i was really surprised to go oh my gosh they're missing just so many big chunks of stuff even to the point of like dialogue and more explanation and just things that really lent themselves to the plot uh overall like the one that really got me was you know we, w- we had just talked about the um the the twins the the two girls i should say and then um that is kind of uh, intercut with this sex scene of CJ Lang and her partner. And then they go to catch Bert. And there's this whole thing about her throwing this handkerchief on the ground. If she catches the guy that she thinks is the animal bandit, that whole swath of dialogue is gone from the alpha France version. And so I went back and watched that version. It's like, Oh my gosh, they show her dropping the handkerchief, but they don't have anything about why she did that it just looks like this mistake (laughs) so it's like why why did you even keep that in there if you're going to cut the dialogue out that explains why she's doing that yeah i thought that was really weird too i was surprised to see you know how much of cut that was you know basically exposition i mean there were a few things that were definitely uh like sex a lot of the stewardess scene with clea carson i mean i didn't realize how gutted that scene was until i watched this cut this like this composite cut because i mean over half of that scene is not on the alpha france um yeah, so that was, and that definitely makes it a lot more effective. But yeah, it's it's really it's weird to me when you see things censored from films that aren't what you expect. Because I mean, you kind of expect, you know, a lot of the stuff, the sex stuff that was cut out was a lot of the stuff involving him using a gun and use the gun a lot. I mean, he uses it a little bit in the Alpha France cut, but there's a lot more of it in the composite cut from the the Dutch and American print. I'm guessing it's a yeah, that's definitely kind of a taboo. Uh, especially post Mies Commission, but uh, but yeah, a lot of it was dialogue, which is odd. The just to give people an idea of how much longer this version is, the the two different versions, the Alpha France version is 16 minutes shorter than this composite cut that was put together. It looks a lot nicer, and that's the thing, as you were saying, Mike, when you watch the longer version, you can sort of tell where certain things are cut or taken out or put back in. And I especially like you were talking about certain things that get cut out. There's that scene that you had referenced earlier with Gloria Leonard where she's sitting in the hammock and she's sort of giving him the, you know, the bill of fare at the, the brothel there. Well, are you into this and that? And we have someone to do this. And there's a series of cuts in there where there's certain things because she's basically reading off a laundry list of all the various things you can do there. And there's certain ones that are removed and some of them are the more, um, edgier stuff to a certain extent. But then again, at the same time, 
the film is about a guy who forces women to get enemas. So what is it about taste? Like you can see it, but you can't have someone tell you certain perversions. I don't, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. You can't just even say the word. The word was cut out. And so it makes that that scene a whole lot sensical as well. And there just are so many little things in here. It's like, you know, I thought, okay, well, there'll be a few major parts or maybe there's a scene that's missing. I mean, you know, you go back and you watch New Wave Hookers and you're like, okay, yeah, all the Tracy Lord stuff is just out of here. So it, there are a couple jump jump moments in there but this is much more subtle with the way that it was cut and i really kind of have to tip my hat to the guy who took the time to track down all these different versions and he's written about them extensively as far as which version had this and which one had that and then taking the time to edit the the even the alpha france taking that and editing it back into the original order that he saw on these vhs tapes so it's like not only do we get that there's things that have been missing, but then things have been reordered. And like I was talking about before with the sex scenes being intercut, I mean, that was one of the nice things about sex scenes back in the golden days of pornography was that you would have multiple sex scenes a lot of times going on. And that just kind of added to the fun or the tension of those uh, sex scenes. And in this one, I, uh, as I said before, it kind of gives you the the nicer sex scene with C.J. Lang and her partner intercut with the sleaziest sex scene with with the uh, the two girls and Jamie Gillis. So you really are not able to enjoy the one because the other one is so rough. So it's it's nice to see that the the guy took the time to put all that stuff back into proper order. Yeah, no, whoever edited that, I mean, he, you know, because as someone like I've, you know, who's done video editing, I mean, that's a tight, it's a tight edit too. Like it fairly, it flows really well, and it just makes me, you know, hope that maybe there'll be a day where somebody can find the master, you know, reel for some of that other footage and do because the Alpha France, the the one advantage it has is that print looks amazing, and you really, oh yeah, you can fully appreciate just the the time. Um, that they took to, you know, to light everything, to set it up. I mean, this wasn't just some, you know, yeah, we'll fart out a film. I mean, this this is some really good filmmaking on multiple levels here. At the same time, I kind of like that when it degrades to that really kind of shitty VHS and you've got the Dutch subtitles and everything, it's like, it's almost like this is the way I should be watching this film. It shouldn't be so beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it should be yeah. this kind of, you know, document that's hard to get my hands on. Yeah. This should be the video search of Miami 12th generation version. I, I just, uh, this is completely non sequitur, but this was created around the, the exact same time and we did an episode on Blood Sucking Freak which is supposedly coming out on a cleaned up blu-ray there's part of me that and even though i pre-ordered it i'm just like you know blood sucking freaks should look that good it should be beat up looking and there is as you were saying there's a certain element with this film that it should be beat up and sort of adds a patina a certain uh, quality that makes the sleaziness of this roughy even more so <laughs> now it's it's funny. I have like I've coined a phrase for that that quality, especially when you're you're having to get like bootleg copies of stuff. Is it's latrino vision because it looks like somebody literally found the print in the latrine and tried to do the best with it, and you get this that duped look. It does make it it does make it more like dirty and almost like you shouldn't be watching it. Like your your heart, you're almost like more nervous. Like oh shit, what's going to happen? You know? It's it's like someone said to me years ago. 
about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the, the first one, said that the reason why it works is that it looks like someone's last home movie. And <laughs> I agree at times. And when they clean it up and make it look too nice, it, uh, it loses some of that value. Absolutely. The one thing that Sean Costello said about the film, and he's written about this on his website and then uh, talked about it in the interview, is that he really kind of considers this comedy. And I feel like I'm really missing something because I just don't see this movie as funny whatsoever. Well, if if you're looking at it from a classical um, drama sense, it is a comedy. And what I mean by that is, is our protagonist at the beginning gets what he wants. And survives in the end. So basically, he achieves his goal. So therefore, technically, it would be a comedy. Now, we would say comedy nowadays is, oh, it's funny. It's it's satire. It's humor. No. Uh, a comedy in the, you know, if you're a dramatist and you're writing a comedy, it just means that your character that you started with achieves his goals, which Jamie Gillis's character does. He achieves his goals. So I guess it's a comedy in that way. But I'm not laughing. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm not really I saw that comment too and um that has really baffled me. I'm completely mystified by that because uh especially cuz you have performers in this film that have done comedy and have done it quite well. I mean, Gillis, the thing that I've always loved about Jamie Gillis is that he he was really like such a chameleon. Like he could do he could be hilarious and charismatic and you know, like like he could be a hero kind of maybe maybe in more of a cad sense, but definitely, you know, like new wave hookers. He's hilarious in that. Like he's so funny, and um, and Eric Edwards is great at comedy. Marlene Willoughby actually is probably one of the lighter characters here. She's great. I mean, you have actors and actresses here who could do comedy well, and nobody's playing it other than Marlene. But her, you know, but everything kind of up to that point, to the Garden of Eden point, is a a little heavy. But you know, it hasn't gone quite off the rails just yet. But I mean, nobody's really playing this as a comedy. It's definitely not Jamie. So well, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not really buying the comedy thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, l- let's go back to the episode we all did together, you know, about a year ago, opening of Misty Beethoven. And that's just a year before. And you look at Jamie Gillis. I mean, you, if you want to talk about range of an actor, that in Misty, he's light, he's happy, he's fun, he's gregarious, he's telling jokes, you know, really like that's the kind of guy you want to hang out with. Here, just a year later, dark, sinister, brooding, detached. It's just an amazing show of range just within those two films. And and it's just one year between those two. So within this period, I mean, just amazing. I mean, anyone who wants to talk about porn acting in the 70s or just acting in general, because I hate the idea of separating the two out. You know, performers are performers. Here, it's just – I, I think he hits it out of the park when you consider those two back to back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gillis Gillis was a master. It uh, just everything that everything I've ever seen him in. I mean, he's always compelling and can just play so many just so many ranges. He could he could warm your heart and scare the living bejesus out of you. You know. <laughs> Yeah, and he is so scary in this. Rob, you you had talked to me a few weeks ago about similarities between Bert and Travis Bickle yeah. and whether they would kind of get along in, in the same universe. Yeah, I mean, to me, there's a lot of similarities between these two films. Now, we talked about Water Power being based on the Michael Kenyon case. Well, it's interesting as Taxi Driver was also based on a real person by the guy. His name is Arthur Bremer, and Bremer first had planned to assassinate Richard Nixon 
around 1972, but he ended up shooting and paralyzing former Governor George Wallace, who was running for president in 1972, and Wallace spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. But Bremer was a guy who had diaries, and he recorded these tapes and journals, and Robert De Niro went and listened and read that stuff when preparing for Travis Bickle. Now, when I think of the difference between the two, when we talk about a comparison between Taxi Driver and Water Power, and we talk about those two characters, I think that they're similar, but I also think they're really different. Um, They're they're similar in one way, and they both want relationships with women, and they obsess over them, especially their vision of who the woman is, not the reality of who the woman is. You know, And then when they get into the reality of a possible relationship, they both can't handle it. For example, Bickle sabotages himself with Betsy, Sybil Shepard by, as we talked about before, taking her to an adult film on their first date. <laughs> and then Bert doesn't relate to his girlfriend and throws her out, as you were talking about in that scene. And it just seems to me like they have this obsession and vision of what it's supposed to be, but when they're dealing with the reality of it, they just can't do it. I think in a lot of ways they have similar drives, although I would say that Gillis's Burt character is much more personal. His drive is much more personal. It's about cleaning out women who he's either obsessed with, and then I think it moves on a little bit more later into sort of this larger societal cleansing. But Bickle, from the very beginning, when you listen to those voiceovers that De Niro has, is all about, you know, a rain's going to come and clean the dirt off the streets and the filth of this world and the stink of it just makes me sick and gives me headaches. And in a lot of ways, they're similar because they both seem to enjoy the activities at that time on 42nd Street. They were probably in the same movie theater together, if you think about it. And I think they may have would have hung out together if they weren't such loners. That whole cast of 1976 over this and the whole idea of the bicentennial and everything that was happening. I mean, New York was just a flutter with activity and the whole idea of the celebration of America and everything. And I know that that for sure plays a big part of Taxi Driver and the the political angle that's going on inside of that and it, it really kind of spoke to me that the film begins with Gillis getting his picture taken in front of this American flag and them making this button out of it and everything and it's just like okay this is it must have been such a strange time in America 1976 New York I mean it was just such a cesspool at that time when we talked to Randy Jurgensen and him just talking about the wars that were happening in New York and just what a, a, a place it was. And here we are trying to celebrate how great America is in this kind of cesspool. It's like, yeah, there, there's two really big conflicting messages going on here. And I think that kind of adds to the tension of, of what's happening in both of these films. Taxi Driver is very Vietnam. We get the, we know that he served in the Marines and Bickle's character. We don't necessarily know if Bert's character is a veteran, but let's just say for the sake of argument, since he's about the same age, maybe he was drafted or had some connection or was at least affected by Vietnam like everybody was in that era. And like you were saying, in this time in New York, we're talking about the sleaze of you know 42nd Street in, in New York City. New York is on the decline. This is the time like right around this time where President Ford told New York he was not going to bail them out. They were going to basically end up bankrupt like Detroit is right now, and they were going to have to figure it out on their own. So there were all of these layers of things. And as you were saying, 1976, trying to celebrate the 200th anniversary of this great country when just the year before the Vietnam War ends. 
So we have this darkness that permeates the early part of the 70s. And when you get to this point, it's like we still haven't dealt with it yet. The psychological damage of what Vietnam, those 10 years in Vietnam, really cost the country and and the young men and and everything. And it plays out in both films. Although I think here it's, it's more an undercurrent than it is with Taxi Driver where it's so much about the politics. He wants to assassinate this guy who's running for president there's all of these you know overt political stuff on top of it and it's not in this film but i think it's under it and it would have that would have been the table that all of these pieces would have been sitting on and that's where the game would have been played in terms of this film they're both obsessed with cleaning the streets and cleaning cleaning <laughs> things mr uh, clean <laughs> No, it's it's funny with the taxi driver comparison because um, the one thing I think that makes the big difference between Travis and Bert is you know Travis's moral compass is a little a little less skewed because it's like he's you know he's got this very similar obsessions but instead of like going around raping women and attempting to kill one you know in the case of CJ's um, character Irene you know he's tra- he's targeting people like you know har- you know ends up killing like the pimp character and just you know. So it's it's a little he's a little more centered. Maybe it's because of the Jodie Foster character because that's there's really no Jodie Foster type character or equivalent in Water Power. I mean, you kind of have the stewardess who's sort of like the Civil Shepherd character to some in some warped way. I kind of think that Bert would be like somebody that Travis would pick up, kind of like the Martin Scorsese character, you know, where Travis would just be like, you know, just further on, like, yeah, this is part of the scum. Like, I think Travis would view him as a scum. Yeah, I, I think in terms of the, the, the way they view sex, is I, I definitely agree with you on that. I mean, Bickle's character is obsessed with, you know, voyeurism to a certain extent, you know, between him going to porn films. But you don't see him play out anything sexually. And I think that in a way that might also be an infusion of Paul Schrader himself because he grew up in very Dutch Calvinist conservative family on the west side of Michigan – and therefore, sexuality would have been very repressed. And that probably in some way mirrors maybe some aspects of Schrader in terms of he found porn interesting, but just, you know, I maybe he couldn't relate to women or didn't have those kind of relationships or was able to take that idea from his youth of, you know, you save that to marriage or that's a very, you know, you protect that in – you know, young girls and things like that, and sort of putting them on that pedestal in that way. So it, it, there are a few differences, definitely, at least in terms of the sexual aspect. The ending for this, when I saw the Alpha France version, the shorter version, when I saw it the first time, I said, wow, I said, this movie, I can understand why, and Heather, you brought it up, the, the women against pornography and things like that would have been just outraged at this film because he doesn't pay for his crimes. He walks away, and even though the police were after him, that's where it ends. He's still out there. Now, the Alpha France version, I think the ending is a bit rougher for us to take. The longer version contains two disclaimers, one on the front of the film, which said that these are real events or based on real events, and it could happen to you. And then the title card at the end of the longer version talks about how many rapes are committed in America each year and how many remain unsolved. So there's sort of this 
and, and I don't necessarily know how to feel about those title cards. Like, were they necessary? Was it the filmmakers trying to sign away their moral obligation, saying, hey, we created this film, but we got to put something on the end that's redeeming and on the front that's redeeming? I, I don't know uh, how to feel about those. But like I said, the first time I saw it, I said, wow. Uh, yeah, I, I can understand why people would have protested this one, and this would have been a hard one to take because, as we've said before, 70s porn film has always been light and fun. And this is like watching Psycho or Taxi Driver or, you know, uh, Solo. It, and it has sex in it. And I think in our mind, at least in my mind, those two things don't match, those two things don't meet in the cinema. When sex comes in, it's fun, light, and frothy. It's not brutal like this, unless it's something that you buy under the counter. You know what I mean? Because there was that kind of stuff going on at the time where there was you know, really heavy bondage S&M films and, and, and roughies in that way, but not movies with you know, known people <laughs> like Jamie Gillis and Sharon Mitchell. But like I said, going back and looking at it again, it is – I, I can understand what they're trying to do, and in that way, I, I have to respect it, and I actually – my opinion of it is improved. I actually said, you know, why can't you have those things? Why can't you have sexuality plus horror or terror? Why does it always have to be light and frothy? That's, I think that's, that's – those are some excellent points, and I, I think a lot of that's tied into the fact that our culture, <clears throat> we are still – and to this day, we're still so repressed that it's like the only way people can digest sexuality is like, like oh, oh, titter, you know, like giggle. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, and that's really sad. It's like people are still afraid to kind of like look at the fact that sexuality is part of the, the human tapestry. Obviously, people had sex because we're here. You know, we're all the result of somebody having sex and it's part of a biology. And it's, you know, and sex can be a fun, silly thing. It can be a terrifying thing for some people. And it's um, it's part of the human condition. And that's that's always what's pulled me to like, you know, some of these classic adult films is that, you know, I was never really pulled to like some of the more sillier ones, but as pulled to the, more, the ones that play out like they are movies, they're not really porn. These are films. Like Water Power is a film. I mean, it's I mean it's a porn. It's a porn maybe in the sense that in the realm of the senses is a porn, you know, because that has explicit non-simulated sex. But nobody's calling that film a porn. I mean, I wouldn't call Devil and Mrs. Jones porn either. I mean, it's you know Damiano's sort of like being more Bergman of adult film. A lot of his darker films have that you know quiet quality to them and um so that's that's the thing i think people hopefully you know with shows like this and um just all the great dialogue going out there uh people will kind of realize and re-examine certain adult films and realize yeah these aren't stupid porno pizza boy <laughs> you know films that no, these are these are these are real films and you should examine them as such and it's funny that you bring up Devil Miss Jones, which we did on the show. And, and during that, in our discussion of that, basically saw it as this existentialist horror film that happens to have sex in it. And the sex in there is – it's a little lighter um, at times, but it's not like beach party light. And the ending of that film is – you know, it, that's, that's – um, it's Camus, <laughs> you know, that's the terror of Sisyphus, you know, or something, just being locked in this one position for the rest of your life and there's nothing you can do about it. And I, I think that this, in a lot of ways, shares a similar DNA where you had filmmakers who were trying to take 
ideas from other places and blend it and come up with something that was totally original. And I can honestly tell you that water power is totally original. And one of the things when we talked about devil and miss Jones in, in this film is the credits on the film says Jared Daliamo and uh, Jared Daliamo did not make this movie. No, no, no. I mean, and anybody who's a big Damiano fan, I think will sense that because, you know, Damiano's work is very story, like very story centered, especially around women. And that's obviously not the case here with <laughs> with Water Power. I mean, him and Costello are two very stylistically different filmmakers. Heather, you've you've used the term roughy a few times. What kind of defines a roughy? Originally, roughies were exploitation films that were non-explicit that emerged in the mid early to mid '60s, and they could technically be traced to the silent era, where you had a lot of uh, exploitation films in the silent film days about the white slave trade and you know women being kidnapped and you know, hooked on opium and all these things. And that sort of came back and you had like Olga's Olga's Girls. Of course, you had the great, absolutely great works of Michael Fenlay with the uh, Flesh trilogy and films like that. And they're basically, you know, um, like pulp, kind of like I was saying, they're like pulp novels, basically. You know, you had the nudies and but those had no sex and so america i think was still so repressed that okay how can we incorporate sexuality in a way that'll pass muster we'll make it a crime film and you know and that way people are titillated but it's kind of you know it's sort of messed up if you think about it psychologically <laughs> where it's like the whole lenny bruce axiom where it's okay to show a you know woman's breast being maimed just don't show it being caressed and um but uh but then in the adult films you had uh in the 70s you did have films that were kind of i think you know connected to that family tree of the finlays and all those films and uh water power is definitely one of them and so is a lot of the work of zebedee colt because yeah, I, I watched a few films when we were doing the um, – when I was doing research for the um, Wakefield Pool episode that we did, I watched a few films that were considered roughies. But those were gay porn roughies, so I wasn't sure exactly where, what their pedigree was. Right. Now, um, did you – I'm just curious. Uh, was one of those films you watched, was it Born to Raise Hell? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I just saw that recently. <laughs> Yeah, that was um that was an unforgettable experience. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. I will never be able to look at a pool hall the same way again. Oh my god. I I don't think I've seen the that film was sponsored by Poppers, I'm pretty sure too. There was a lot of amol <laughs> going on in that film which you see going on that you know explains why. But um but yeah, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, uh, one can maybe even tie that to like, you know, with the whole gay roughies thing is that um you know, I mean, you had a, a subculture that was, you know, just coming out of being told, you know, you're wrong, it's illegal to be gay, it's mental illness. And so when you have anything that's repressed, things are going to bubble up in some pretty interesting ways, sometimes unhealthy, sometimes more exploratory. And, um, you know, S&M sex in general can definitely be a part of that for good or bad, depending on, you know, what you're doing and what your code word, you know, what, <laughs> what your code word is. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing for Water Power that I learned through my research is the German title sounds so much more fun. Spritz? Spritz! That's right. <laughs> it's just like, oh, yes, Spritz. It's just love. It's light, refreshing. Light and fun and frothy. And, yeah. It's so funny that this film became such a big hit in Germany to me. Because whenever I think of German film, German adult film, I usually think of the Scheiser films. Uh, <laughs> that is that niche so good. <laughs> nine, nine. 
I was very surprised when I was doing research on this one that there was a whole series of films called the Enema Bandit series from 1995, it looks like, that Bizarre Video put out. And as I was looking around, it looks like there might have been four movies, possibly, that F.J. Lincoln did. I'm not sure, because I only was able to track down one Enema Bandit Abducted by the Enema Bandit, Enema Bandit Returns, and Enema Bandit Strikes Again. You forgot one. Which one? Uh, Enema Bandit, The Phantom Menace. I prefer Electric Boogalier myself. That's my my favorite Enema Bandit sequel, but... (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, uh, you pass this one around. Did everyone get a chance to watch the first of the Enema Bandit series? I did. I watched. I actually watched it like uh, about two hours before we started doing this interview. And um, wow, that was yeah, that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> no, no, and, no. And, and it was sad from several levels. One is I thought it was made in the eighties. I find out it was made in ninety four, ninety five. But it's all shot on video. The titles look like they were done on a video toaster. It's horrible. And there are people in it, including Sharon Mitchell, who's in Water Power, who you're like, oh, great. You know, it's like Sharon Mitchell's in there, Tracy Adams in there, she's pretty good. And it is such a letdown. It seems like this was really the time when these folks, and, and Sharon will tell you if you listen to the first uh, interview, first part of the interview we did with her on Smoker episode the amount of drugs going on. It just seems like everybody's out of their minds on this film. And it's not very sexy. And I don't think people that are into animas would even be interested in this because it doesn't, it's, it seems more like, like someone trying to do anima scenes who are dancing at a strip club and really bad lingerie. <laughs> well, there's really no enema thing going on because it seems like, okay, we're going to stick this tube up this person's butt and then that's it. Like, cut to the next scene. It's like, what? <laughs> there's, there's nothing. There's, there's like the one scene towards the end where it's the two nurses that are teaching the cop exactly how to do enemas. And as soon as the one woman is full, she's like, okay, yeah, I got to go to the bathroom. And she leaves. It's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you remarked on Facebook some of the sterling dialogue that is oh, in the Bandit. Yeah, yeah. The one cop, there's, I, I really makes you appreciate both of our main police people in uh, Water Power. And uh, unfortunately, C.J. Lang was not able to reprise her role in this one because the lady who takes on the role, the female cop, just horrible. And she really cannot even pronounce a lot of words. So it was, it, it really hurt to hear her talk and then the other cop was just so lackadaisical and just always trying to to like his whole dialogue seemed to be filled with double entendres but they were not very clever whatsoever so yeah just the whole thing really hurt I, I this was one that i really wish that my video player allowed me to do with some fast forwarding on uh, see, I, I got lucky because I, I had originally tried to burn this onto DVD, and my DVD, like, re- I don't know, it's like it's something went wrong in the burning process, and so I'm like, fine, I'll watch it on my computer, and so I was able to kind of skip past it on the on the computer, but I realized I think the DVD rejected the film because it was just, 
<laughs> it was really dreadful, and it's and it's weird because I mean I guess because of the era, because I mean by the '90s there was just so many things you could not show or do, and so there's no expulsions, which I mean I'm fine with. I don't you know, but I mean somebody buying that or renting that, looking who isn't to Enemas, is going to be very disappointed. And yeah, Tracy Adams was totally man the two talented because Tracy Adams was a really good actress and a beautiful woman, and she's just kind of she looks good, but she's wasted. And then Sharon, uh, Sharon at least was put to good use for the twist, which I don't, do we want to spoiler this? Because I think it's the only good thing about the whole movie is the, is the twist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I love. So let's let's explain. I want to explain the plot of the <laughs> seconds. People have sex and and. They leave the room, and then the anima bandit shows up and sticks the tube up their butt, and then cut to the next day or another scene, and we have the cops kind of following this through. And it's always the same thing. It's like people are having sex, and one person leaves. It's not only that, but they leave the room in a position that would allow someone to sneak up behind them to do so. So it's like, I'll be right back. Just stay bent over like that. And it's just like so staged and ridiculous. So we go through this whole thing where I think we have four sex scenes and some dialogue, some horrible dialogue in between. And the sex scenes aren't very sexy or very good. I didn't mind the opening scene that much, but it just kind of went on for too long. Now, here's the thing. It went on for too long. Dear listener, this film, 48 minutes. Yeah. And it says to be continued. Now, when we say it's too long and it's 48 minutes, you know there's a problem. Oh my god! Yeah, that that first scene felt like. I mean, I ended up. I I initially was like, because I don't really like fast forwarding through movies in general, and I soldiered through about the first ten minutes, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna skip and see if I can find Tracy and, and Sharon, and this because, and I'd stop for every scene. But yeah, the the two the opening scene was way too long. The music was awful. And that that whole mid-90s, this is a superficial comment, but the whole mid-90s era were like the implants because like the, their main victim, who's really pretty, um, and she gives a, a go. You know, she did her best, but like it just her boobs look like they hurt. And I'm, I, that distracts me as a woman. I'm just like, those implants look like they hurt. And uh, I mean, implant technology, I guess, has been improved a little bit since the 90s. But, um, oof, you know, and but Sharon, of course, for like, you know, the two seconds we get her, of course, was magnificent, which is, you know, just, I think, further uh, testimony to the awesomeness of Sharon Mitchell. I didn't think that the movie had converted correctly for me because there is no music during the entire opening credits. <laughs> it's like I'm like turning up the volume and stuff. I'm like, what is going on? So was there music? Was it just not in the one? Because sometimes my headset will cut out on one channel. I didn't get any music whatsoever in the opening of it. The the opening credits. Well, they couldn't afford it. I mean, the the budget was so big on this thing that they just didn't have any money left over. It just they couldn't even. Hire someone to, I don't know, play a kazoo. They just couldn't do anything with the music. So long story short, we go through the four sex scenes, which I guess are about 10 minutes piece if this is 48 minutes long. And at the very end, we find out that the animal bandit is actually a woman and it is Sharon Mitchell to be continued. When that happens, I go, really? Because I always thought that fetish was men. I always said that men were into like fetish things. Women, not so much. 
Um, but it's not really explained that it why it would be her because she only shows up for the last two minutes of the film. And I guess I'm asking too much of this movie for them to explain anything related to her character or why she does what she does. Yeah, you, you just put more thought into that film than anybody <laughs> – connected with it i mean it it actually gave me a little bit of pts of like i'd I'd once got a copy of a movie that was supposed to be a beetlejuice uh porn parody which don't judge me i was intrigued by this the cover looked good and it was called beetlejism and this is but you know what this is my lesson learned if the word jism's in the title don't get it it's not gonna be good and it was horrible and and the movie was a cop-out as much like the enemas how there's no expulsions he, there's no Beetlejuice in the film. It, none. I mean, there's like some clown and a really sub video toaster editing because I've I've seen some stuff edited with video toasters that was actually halfway decent looking for you know for being video, and uh, this was even sub that. I mean, I I actually I was you know that was the worst two dollars I've ever spent in my life. I really I regret that. <laughs> Yeah, this one, it looks like it was all shot in like a, a studio, and it was just so murky and dark, it could barely make out anything that was going on, and then I really didn't want to make out anything that was going on. I mean, the hetero scenes that they had, a couple of them, it was just like, yeah, this really isn't doing anything for me, and I didn't buy any of it. I didn't think that any of these people were remotely interested in anybody else. No, no, it was it was just abysmal, and... uh yeah, and it, and it's weird because a lot of people complain about shot, you know, video, and um, you know, I've um, you know, talked with uh, Eric Edwards, and um, and he directed a lot of films in the '90s, and so he was there for that transition from like you know 35 and 16 to you know to video, but his films always looked pretty good, but he was always like you know the problem with video is a lot of people just stopped lighting it. They just got really lazy, and he, he, you know, as somebody who came from the film world and the theater world, he's, you know, he always made a point to be like, no, this is three point lighting. We want this to look good. We don't want it to look like it was shot in somebody's gross office or whatever. <laughs> you know, we want this to at least you know look like a movie as much as we can make it. And the whole thing is, is that opening scene that Mike talks about was supposedly it took place in a club because there's a cop that shows up and says, "I want to talk to you about what happened at the club last night." It doesn't even look like a club. It looks like they shot it in a corner of a basement with black walls, and I have no idea that there was an audience or there was anybody there or, you know, it's it, – there, and, and a lot of the sets are like that. It's just like, um, yeah, let's shoot this in the office park down there in, you know, the valley or whatever, and we'll just use this guy's desk or something. And, oh, there's a couch and there's a really bad sofa-sized photo or sofa size painting we bought at the you know starving artist sale at the holiday inn put that up on the wall it's just yeah it's just terrible oh well you know the weird thing is that you know i'm assuming the fj lincoln is fred lincoln and of course that's what i was thinking yeah and that's really weird too because you're talking about sharon and tracy but i mean fred of course was involved i mean i actually recently uh watched a roberta finlay film an early solo film of hers called um altar of lust and he's in it i mean he was also of course in um last house on the left too you know i mean so it's kind of weird that these these people with these pedigrees you know with really good some good stuff and uh walter of lust isn't that great of a film but fred did some good movies too and uh just it's kind of weird to just see this really just abysmal i mean it's just it's boring it's really i couldn't even you know oh and boring really is the worst crime (laughs) and and i think maybe what it was is that it was one of those, as you were saying, you know, in the video era, it was like, all right, you got two days to shoot everything and do it. 
you know, and or maybe just one day. And I could see how they could do this in one day or two days. And it's like, all right, come on, you know, because the thing is, is that there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of intercutting, especially that opening scene. Like you were saying, Mike, it, it's like ten minutes, and it seems like it all is shot from just set up the camera and let it roll. Well, you know, if I can say one thing that I've learned on this episode, if there's a moral to the story, it's going to be not to track down the other films in the Anima Bandit <laughs> series, and to definitely track down more films starring Marlene Willoughby. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so, so you don't want to see uh, the Anima Bandit, uh, the Phantom Menace? No, I, I waited a lot for hours to see that one and I will not see it again. But the pod race scene is amazing. I mean, you really have to admit. Wow. You know, actually an Enema Bandit would have improved Phantom Menace. I mean, think about the potential with Jar Jar Binks and everything. Well, if you're curious, the Three Gorges Dam on the Yangtze River in China is the largest water power facility in the world. Generates over 22 gigawatts of electricity. Wow. There you go. More water power trivia for you. I love it. (laughs) All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, we're continuing to examine the lower depths. Next week we'll be talking about the Japanese Roman porno film Zoom In Sex Apartments. And that will begin a line of entire Roman-themed films throughout the month of August, which includes the notorious Caligula from Tinto Brass. So make sure that you tune in for that. But before we go, I want to thank our special guest co-host, Heather Drain, for stopping by. Now, Heather, you were on our opening of Misty Beethoven episode, which we talked about before, and, you know, good friends with us here. And I know you've been very busy lately, so uh, just wanted to see what you're up to recently. Oh, well, thank you. No, and I love, I love the projection booth. It's always a pleasure and, uh, to be with you guys. And um, yes, I've definitely been busy. In addition, of course, I write regularly for um, the website Dangerous Minds, as well as for my own blog, Mondo Heather. I'm also working on a book with uh, Eric Edwards, who, is, of course, is our uh, genial doctor in water power. And I'm working with him on doing, uh, basically, it's sort of like memoirs, but in a movie sort of way. Um, it's definitely a very interesting project and so you know we're in the middle of working on that as a book uh i'm also working on a book about the uh work of steven sadian who of course directed uh cafe flash party dollar go go dr calgary um and steven's a genius and so i'm starting to delve into his work also his work with hustler magazine so i've got that there's also some, uh, some other projects on the line but that's kind of um that's sort of the main thing right now 
Sounds like you've got a lot of stuff keeping you busy. Oh yes, yes. Sleep, sleep is for the week, apparently. <laughs> and and we robbed you of forty eight minutes by making you watch the Enema Bandit. I'm sorry. Oh my god. Well, technically, probably thirty because I did skip through a lot of it. So. <laughs> but it's we suffer for our art, don't we? <laughs> Could have been watching that or The Big Bang Theory. Which would you rather? Oh, Enema Bandit. Yeah, I mean, because Big Bang Theory doesn't have Sharon Mitchell in a gimp mask. And, you know, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll take that over uh, over any Chuck Lorre productions any day. <laughs> well, thanks again, Heather, for coming on to our show. And thanks to this week's guests, Gene Silver, Sharon Mitchell, and Sean Costello. You can find links to all kinds of good stuff about them over at our website, projection-boot.com. And you also find links over to Heather's stuff as well. And, hey, you can also find a link there to go over to our iTunes page where you can leave us a review and some stars. It'll make you feel good and clean inside and out. And now, folks, it's time for Don Pardo to deliver our special Illinois Enema Bandit-type announcement. Take it away, Don! This is a true story about a famous criminal from right around Chicago. This is the story of Michael Kenyon, a man who is serving time at this very moment for the crime of armed robbery. It so happens that at the time of these robberies, Michael decided to give his female victims a little enema. Apparently, there was no law against that. But his name lives on. Michael Kenyon, the Illinois Enema Bandit. Just I wanna 
judge would have him on a special guest. Then the DA will order a secret test. Stuff his pudgy little thumbs in the side of his vest. Then I'll put out a call, you for the jury folks. That's you over there. The judge would say, No poo poo jokes. Then they'll drag in the band for all to see. Saying, Don't know nobody, no, no, no sympathy. Oh, hot soapy water in the first degree. And then the bandit might say, Again. Potato-headed Bobby talking about the Illinois. 
job stinks. barren ways without the taste of water Ooh, water Oh, and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry of water Nights are cool and I'm a fool Each star's a pool of water We pray for water Yeah. 